0: Open the so-called body and spread out all its surfaces, not only the skin with each of its folds, wrinkles, scars, with its great velvety planes, and contiguous to that the scalp and its mane of hair, the tender pubic fur, nipples, snails, hard transparent skin under the heel, the light frills of the eyelids, set with lashes, but open and spread, expose the labia majora, so also the labia minora, with their blue network, bathed in mucus. Dilate the diaphragm of the anal sphincter, longitudinally cut and flatten out the black conduit of the rectum, then the colon, then the sacrum, now a rhythm with its surface all striolated and polluted with shit, as though your dressmaker's scissors were opening the leg of an old pair of trousers. Go on. Expose the small testin's alleged interior, the jejunum, the ilium, the duodenum, or else at the other end, undo its mouth at the corners, pull out the tongue at its most distant roots and split it. Spread out the bat wings of the palate and its damp basements. Open the trachea and make it the skeleton of a boat under construction. Armed with scalpels and tweezers, dismantle and lay out the bundles and bodies of the encephalon, and then the whole network of veins and arteries intact on an immense mattress, and then the lymphatic network, and the fine bony pieces of the wrist, The ankle, take them apart and put them end to end with all the layers of nerve tissue which surround the aqueous humors and the cavernous body of the penis. And extract the great muscles, the great dorsal nets, spread them out like smooth, sleeping dolphins. Work as the sun does when you're sunbathing or taking grass.
1: The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity. Including the ultimate form of singularity, which is... Okay. Violence without object This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the creator, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here.
0: Welcome to Machine Unconscious Happy Era with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I introduce our guest today, just want to throw out, I've got a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing me a buck to help out. Very excited for today's discussion. I've got three gentlemen joining me, and we're looking at chapter one of Jean-Francois Lyotard's Libidinal Economy. This will be the the Hamilton translation. Chapter one is titled Ephemeral Skin. I will let each of you introduce yourselves today.
1: You may know me from our recent, the stuff we've done in the past. Thanks for having me back on. I'm Taylor Adkins and I'm excited to do some Wicked Leotard, bro. Hell
2: yeah. Cute, you got? All right. Uh, hey everyone, it's newmina Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Coop. And I'm um, pretty excited to go over some libidinal economy. These are the boys. Really happy
3: to be on the podcast. It's Young agobin. Really good just to see people face-to-face, honestly. Looking forward to talking to you guys. Right. It's going to be fun.
0: I feel like this first paragraph sentence is something that we could probably spend a whole, whole episode discussing. What I find interesting about this is this sort of, the leotards taking this three-dimensional body and kind of like flattening it out. He's smoothing it out in a, in a sort of, what I was getting was a reference to Freud and Lacan in terms of a, Topological map of the body and and so forth that I just found incredibly interesting as as a way to kind of understand what the fuck leotard's getting at here, which I think we're taking is you know he's also taking direct influence or um, inspiration from from antiedipus right that very first sentence it might even be helpful maybe i should we should have someone read the first sentence of of antiedipus to kind of as a compare and contrast mode. I always wonder how much
3: it's like Loyotard is influenced by anti because it's like light, lightweight contemporaneous, right? 1974, so it's like yeah. within a year of the publication of anti Yeah, I mean, it's, I, obviously it's clear that it's like the same exact stylistically and content-wise, just right in line with it, but I've always wondered how much of it is like Loyotard read to lose, and like this is the direction now. Yeah, Or if it's just like they were both working on
1: this strain of libidinal materialism. I think you're right about that you know it, it, it's almost too coincidental um you know 74 72 so he would have started writing this i assume you know immediately after at least perusing anti Oedipus. but at the same time you know they Deleuze and leotard are, are tapping into this uh this nietzsche freud marx thing right and so leotard takes it in one direction and they do have a resonance obviously leotard has got a very distinct style here. distinct from, you know, what Dulles and Guattari only kind of play with at times, but Leotard's taking it to an extreme. And it's also different from Lyotard's other works, which aren't necessarily like this.
0: He did call this his evil book later on. Yeah. He, he disavows out.
2: it still. May 1968. You can see the trajectory, I guess, from both Oedipus and libidinal economy you know taking a stance in terms of i guess you could say like failed revolutions or failed movements yeah in that sense and kind of setting up a tone for what uh, what you guys already said what like theory would sound like or what it would be written like taylor did you find anti because I, yeah, I have, you I a, have so a, much garbage
0: go ahead and read that first
1: yeah so so that the opening chapter right it's it's just you know the design machines and the opening sections label desiring production but you know, Oedipus in the French wasn't, didn't have its subsections uh, titled. So that's just kind of the translators trying to help us. They say it is at work everywhere, functioning smoothly at times at other times and fits and starts. It breathes, it heats, it eats, it shits and fucks. What a mistake to have ever said the id. Everywhere it is machines, real ones, not figurative ones. Machines driving other machines, machines being driven by other machines with all the necessary couplings and connections. An organ machine is plugged into an energy source machine. The one produces a flow that the other interrupts. The breast is a machine that produces milk and the mouth is a machine coupled to it. The mouth of the anorexic wavers between several functions. Its possessor is uncertain as to whether it is an eating machine, an anal machine, a talking machine, or a breathing machine. Asthma attacks. Hence, we are all handymen, each with his little machines. For every organ machine, an energy machine. All the time, flows, and interruptions. Judge Schraber has sunbeams in his ass, a solar anus, and rest assured that it works. Judge Schraber feels something, produces something, and is capable of explaining the process theoretically. Something is produced. The effects of a machine, not mere metaphors. Nice. I think, it's, I think yeah. it's very important to bring up here, right? as you were saying, this is not... It's not Leotard necessarily just being poetic or there's an intensity to the, to the writing, obviously that has poetic resemblances, but it's, you know, that would be the thing I think Leotard would, would want to, you know, stamp that on, on the book as well. Not, not mere metaphors. The style
3: has to be one with the content in terms of like the entire, at least, you know, the first chapter is a critique of the powers of representation itself. So when in your styling, I like this kind of theory because I like the poetic aspects of it, but yeah, like, the theory has to be poetry. It has to be like the Dionysic energy mm-hmm. as close as you can sort of re-territorialize that into Apollonian representation. <laughs> Both of them are, are in this weird style binge of French 70s philosophy, but mm-hmm. I mean, that's just poetry to me, honestly.
0: Yeah, it definitely is, I think, indicative of where land kind of cribs his style, of, yeah. especially like this first sentence is definitely like the... It has the pace of the acceleration, right?
1: The story goes like this, you
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Very similar vibe. What I think is interesting, like, in the setting the stage for, like, Leotard himself is that he is the most, uh, like, I think he's in, he's teaching in Algeria during the Algerian, French-Algerian war during that conflict, which I would assume is effectively the, maybe the thing that spurs him to become, a Marxist radical and, you know, he's writing in various journals and I've heard he's the, he was kind of the person with the most like foot on the ground activism during during 68. Like he's the most militant one is libidinal economy. Like an overcorrection. Is he like slamming the wheel, like in the other direction? Yeah. That's a really reaction? interesting point. Like
3: the big critique of libidinal economy and even Deleuze to a certain, to a certain extent is like the lack of a political project. You know, people are like, what's your politics here? You know, because they're really, it, it sort of tries to transcend the discourse of politics. And like he says in the first chapter, the idea that like political economy is metaphysics, you know, he's just sort of blending all of these disparate boundaries in
2: some sort of weird concoction. Just to kind of balance what you've said, Young, would be they're trying, I think what Deleuze and Guattari and definitely Leotard, what they're trying to show or put forward is that the revolution, in quotes, you know, really happens like in the text, in between the lines. And in that sense, um, what you what you guys have already mentioned, it's that attack on representation coming from structuralism to what you would call now post-structuralism or postmodernism, whatever you want to call it. In that sense, it's texts like these that really undermine those those systemic representations, you know, of 19th century structuralism.
0: Yeah. Or even like marxist you know, the proletariat, etc.
3: There's like a functional hypocrisy though cuz you're simultaneously writing this post-structuralist text about the limits of representation while having to represent it in some way. So that's that's always what I find so interesting about the theory is like it has to operate with that hypocrisy in mind that you're doing the thing that you're critiquing. You're in the process of deconstructing yourself as you're writing in a weird way
2: hundred percent. I think one of the, I don't know who's brought this up once. I don't know if I saw it on Twitter, but the whole notion of Deliz and Guattari's use of the rhizome as like a representation. And then, I mean, I think Taylor, you would know more than this in terms of Laurel kind of bringing up true imminence, um, mm-hmm. not really using, not choosing philosophy, for example, as the primary form of representation, not falling into those kind of tropes.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, Laurel, um, he, especially in the eighties, he, uh, but you can see some of it in the seventies with his crazy books on like the textual machines book on, uh, that plugs Nietzsche, Deleuze and Derrida into this like weird ass writing machine. Um, you know, he experiments with some, some, some forms of kind of philosophical riffing that loosely remind me of, of what, Le- leotard is doing here except that leotard's material at least you know in this first paragraph and and even in the the next it keeps this kind of visceral where it's it's the body itself that that provides the the material and the matter to be rehandled right stretched out topologically as as uh, as Coop was saying and I, I I couldn't help but think when Coop when you're reading the 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 intro and I I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard this fact that if you take all the veins and the arteries and you you stretch them out, it's like 60,000 miles. So it span the world. I mean, it's just one body, right? Just one adult body, 60,000 miles to go around the the earth uh, more than twice. And I I just looked it up because I had to think, see this, the capillaries, right? The smallest ones uh, almost go into like that, uh, uh, that molecular level. They are, they make up 80% of that. So there's something really fascinating that I didn't know that in that, that you know stretching out the capillaries really gets you that distance the majority of it
0: have any of you seen the bodies exhibit before do you know what i'm talking about i the, do yeah the one time i went to the exhibit i'm not that kind of stuff definitely like i get nauseous or like <laughs> by it but in this <laughs> so particular you're not, you're not, body horror isn't your thing not not so much um the funny thing here was i was i was like super fucking hungover and I went mm. to this bodies exhibit and <laughs> okay. I was just like, I, I could barely stomach it. <laughs> but that's immediately kind of the image I get because, you know, there's so many different fu- ways that they like separate out the nervous system or the circulatory system, etc. Right. You will yeah. I have to like link a, a YouTube video or something from the bodies exhibit to exemplify that. But it's a good visual to tie into yeah. this kind of like image that this image of the libidinal
1: band right bring up. i'm going to try to toss a little of these out at you guys throughout um quickly the the band is the word they would use in english we say mobius strip uh in french they they use the word band so i just yeah. want you guys to think of that too that the band is yeah. is the strip and it has right. that that mobian uh, and, and and leotard makes it clear i just meant like animal artists in right. the term in the terminology that yeah. the, the band is 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 the strip in, in the sense of the mobius
0: I like band a lot better I think it's a lot more Mm. evocative there's like a I don't know strip doesn't have the it doesn't connote the weight that band does if that Mm. makes sense like Mm -hmm. there's a more band sounds like more robust and like flexible strip strip is more a strip is static right I I can see that it's static and it's more like insignificant whereas I think of like a rubber band right? right that can be twisted up and like you can take that thing and you can string you can make knots or whatever but right. Then it's it's uh, resilient enough that it will like flip back into its original sort of shape or something. Well,
1: I like that. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think of strip as less like a comic strip or something like that, right? right? Which which does have a, a, a flatness to it that yeah. they don't call it this anymore, but like a racing strip, right? Where it's it is a it is a loop. But I do think bound, band in its etymology with bound and and these these other things. I think yeah, in English. Band works better. So, why it's called a Möbius strip? The only reason why strip works in my head is because of I already think of that one-sided kind of infinity. Um uh, yeah, I gotcha. Uh, but yeah, I, I like that. That's that's good. And there was one thing I was going to say. Uh, I think both cute and um, Younger Gambin brought this up uh, in their exchange. I, it made me think about this stuff about whether it be theory practice or the intensity of of the writing or his political involvements, you know, five years later, he's gonna write uh, The Postmodern Condition, which is one of his more well-known books. And, I, you know, you, you, with the critique of representation here and these other things, I'm wondering if part of the, where the quote unquote political project lies in this in this type of libidinally intense writing, whether or not it's already gearing us, prepping us for this critique of metanarratives. And in itself, it, the the book itself does it fall prey to that that easy categorization of having a sort of smooth, you know, straight, you know, straight cut meta narrative to it. What I think what I think
0: is kind of interesting, and this is kind of just gleaned from reading other people commenting on on the book is that for Deleuze and Guattari, like there is there can be, and and you can check me on this, Taylor. There's like there can be a positive and negative. Not a teleology, a teleological function to desire, but like there's no appropriate or positive way for desire to express itself. Like there's no there's no one right way for it to be expressed. Yeah, gotcha. Versus maybe uh, Deleuze and Guattari have you know maybe there's a possibility of something of desire having like a positive. Expression. I think maybe that gets to the heart of that question. Does that get us back to this
1: Lacan or the, the whole history of lack, like with Plato and Lacan? Are you trying to say that maybe Lyotard has a different understanding of lack, or were you talking more maybe about just the representativity of desire, right? Because I do, I do think that— I think maybe the representativity
0: yeah. of it, perhaps,
1: Because, so because the history. Because for Deleuze and Guattari, what's so important about— Desire and its interplay with representation is precisely the bewitchment that befalls whether you call it bad conscience or whatever. What leads us to Oedipus is this is this kind of bewitchment of desire being mistaken and taken for its representation, right? In acts of transgression and that whole like, oh, that's what I really want. I wanted to fuck my mom. And and so that's where it becomes the distortions involved in desire's representation and, and such, that reflexivity, and that we could say that twisting and nodding is precisely what gets us to this point where we can formulate the problematic such that the question, why do the masses desire fascism, makes sense?
3: I also think to this Lacan point, like I think one of the major breaks with libidinal economy into losing Guattari <laughs> for me is the idea that lack doesn't produce desire, but desire is sort of primary to lack. And lack only comes in once it's captured. The intensities, say, of desire being produced are captured in some form of representation that's never enough to encompass like the totality of desire itself. So lack is sort of that feeling that I only have this much representation of what I desire. And then Lacan calls that, well, that's how desire is made. It's like you're missing something and you're, you you know, you produce a desire out of that. But the losing and Guattari and Loyotard come from this place of like operating purely productively with desire, like from the zero purely productive and then lack is only introduced in your ability to represent desire
0: i think in my own understanding of lack i i really like that maybe it's just because of the ease of understanding desire is lack but see i do think that that negative is is productive right like for me when i'm trying to formulate this and maybe i'm taking lack as too like ontologically, ontological rather and seeing it as that sort of Like being at that level, right? Versus maybe what Lacan is really getting at to like break this down into like a very understandable level. It would be um, sort of the cliche that like necessity is the mother of invention. And I think that's a good maybe metaphor for how lack is productive because it's like, if you didn't have to innovate or be creative or generate, like if you had everything you needed, then there would be no... There's no drive towards creation or destruction or anything. If you are a totality, if you're a singularity that's complete and and full of whatever, whether that be, I don't know, meaning or or whatever the case may be, then like there's no, what's the point of even, like if you're dead matter or whatever, like if you're recuperated back into the real or the one substance or whatever, like at that point, there's no, what's, there's no desire, right? There's no need, there's no necessity, but it's that lack that generates that desire to fill the lack with something that pushes us, that drives us.
3: Like the Lacanian and Deridian ideas of substitution, like everything being that lack just, or sort of just like desire having to find a substitution in the signifier. I think sort of one of the big critiques that libidinal materialism provides to that is that that's sort of like a new ontological limitation that they're creating. You know, it's like a new representation that's just as like it doesn't yeah. really get to the heart of what desire and representation have in common with each other. It creates like this new system of like, oh, it just works through substitution. And like, of course you need to substitute, but substitution doesn't come from just like, you know, an innate ability to substitute or the innate need to substitute. It's just that substitution is the way that desire is sort of presented to itself.
0: Desire, are you saying maybe that desire, this is how I kind of think of it as desire can become its own meta-narrative in that sense.
3: Yeah, exactly. Like there's a Mm -hmm. new narrative to what desire is that doesn't really get to the heart of like what, what I think they think like a true pro-structuralism is, to say that there's not like an ability to, to structurally sort of imagine an ontology of what desire is when you're creating lack or when you're using lack to describe it.
0: Does anyone have a handle on what Lyotard is referencing with, this great, with the zero, the great zero? I don't understand how, to differ, how do I differentiate between that and lack in a sense. I don't even know what register he's dis- discussing. Well, I mean, the, the, the grade zero
1: is, to me, ha- has resonances with uh, the full body without organs, right? So it is that surface upon which intensities circulate and, uh, you know, disjoin, connect, conjoin, all that. So that, I think the grade zero, there's a wager in identifying it as as not being the same as traditional Understandings of lack in the negative. Does that make sense?
3: It's like Deleuze and Guattari said: if, like, when you're assuming lack, you're assuming from a presupposition of negativity. Yeah. Like a zero isn't negative. You know what I mean? Right. Like you, you, can deterritorialize back to zero, but you're not starting from negative one, so to speak. It, yeah, it's exactly. always being produced back, like, to and from the zero.
1: I like that. One of the things that's really interesting is in that what is it? The third, maybe the fourth paragraph. He talks about he brings up this question of representativity and substitution um, that we just talked about. And he, he mentions polymorphous perversity basically. And, and I, it made me think of Freud, obviously, obviously Freud is in here somewhere. And I just, what it made me think of is in the four, in the four uh, proponents of the drive, right? You've got, you've got pressure, you've got aim, object, and source. The notion of source is one of the most mysterious ones. And one, and, and the one, which Freud is most reticent to talk about, because he defines it in terms of a, a bodily process, right? It's a somatic process, but it's represented in mental life by a drive, right? So there's this representative of the drive that found in the source, which is biological, which is bodily, which is visceral. And this is where Freud will, Basically, say, look, psychology can't speak of it. It's it's biology's role to be able to give us some insight into how how a source functions. Um, so I see some of that in these opening lines with this notion of topologically, you know, stretching out the the body.
3: It's always really complicated to me this like moving between dimensionality. Like this like topology is necessarily two-dimensional even though it's describing like something that isn't necessarily two-dimensional, might be three-dimensional. Like same with words obviously are two-dimensional signifier, but like what Loyotard writes in that first long sentence is almost this imagination of a third-dimensional space using the second dimension. So there's this problem that like is very interesting to me where they're, they're trying to describe something that's literally like spatial, like three-dimensional, if not even like fourth-dimensional or having to do with time. But they're trying to do it because you you sort of necessarily have to limit that to your ability to represent it in the second dimension, like on a graph or with language. But the reach is to this this dimension that's that's inherently limited by your ability to represent it. If you're always reduced to the second dimension, it's very difficult for me to like understand how that leap happens. You know what I mean? Like how how is it that we should understand something that's inherently ununderstandable with our current ability to represent it,
2: you know? I think that kind of reminds me of the, well, it's in the glossary in the second term, the dispositif in terms of what it's set out to kind of do. Um, I know that different authors use it interchangeably kind of the same, but they have their nuanced differences. I think Agamben has a paper or like a small essay about uh, the dispositif, or I don't know how you would want to say it, but kind of like this you could call it this third term you know this kind of like uh the way that it's used it's always this third term this kind of middle ground that in a way kind of how you were saying uh young we're always constantly trying to use two-dimensional language to describe three-dimensional language and by falling back on this third term you could call it maybe think about it like as an empty signifier of some sort uh, that's how you can access that or refer to something that um normally you wouldn't have that language or that representation to kind of address
3: yeah exactly it's kind of funny like to read that first sentence i'm doing exactly what he's saying we're trying to get away from like i'm sort of in the cave right like i'm imagining this body like i'm in a movie theater sort of like projecting it in my mind which is his thing is like that's that's the prison house of representation itself so like understanding the limits of representation but i'm still doing it through the same limitation you know that he put out at the outset
0: This is something that Taylor and I have discussed a lot about, like, you use language to criticize language or use representation (laughs) to criticize language. It's almost like playing on that meme. We actually discussed it on our last Machinic Unconscious Deep Dive.
1: And yeah, I think that that's great to bring up because it is precisely, you know, obviously, like they say, like, the I think it's in the faciality plateau in A Thousand Plateaus when they're like, you looked at the clock and the, the clock had was was a certain time and you you go out and your boss gives you a raised eyebrow. You walk home, you step at a pile of shit. Doesn't it, it doesn't matter what it means, it's still signifying. And, mm-hmm. and and so we're we're sort of always already caught up in sort of plugging signifiers into a matrix. I think that part of the the force and the strength of of you know, writings like Anti Oedipus and Leotard's Wicked evil book, you know, the <laughs> libidinal economy is this notion that the signifiers are not the primary particles, you know, about, talking about science particles mm-hmm. and stuff like that, but it's really about these flows of intensities and it's what you know Laura well will talk about as as libido of writing and its in its kind of you know he'll talk about a generalized deconstruction in like the euclidean sense special in in general this notion of a libido of writing i do think leotard is doing it without i mean he's calling attention to it precisely because of that it doesn't have to be the the content of the the significational assemblage so i think that's that's pushing pushing language to a limit that's that's intense in ways that obviously we have to talk about poetry but i i think kind of like how e cummings try to push the grammatical framework to and stretch it to to a limit in order to produce these unexpected and sort of deviously intense juxtapositions
2: i think it's funny that you mentioned that taylor because for example if you watch kind of like leotard's like development i guess like in his thought he starts off with I'm, I, for, I always forget the name of the book but it's like figure and um discourse figure discourse and figure you know he's always trying to show like at least in that one he's trying to like you know there's always you could say like discourse with within the form or the figure or there's always you can't talk about the form or figure without you know having certain representations of it that's what he's kind of analyzing in that book and then in terms and in, in economy at least he's you know taking a really hard you could say almost like strong materialist stand that you know this stuff like affects emotions whatever you want to call them they do have a material you could say objective reality to them and you know later on he even goes in postmodern condition he starts talking about language games but it's funny that you see this development where he starts off with kind of like the limits of you could call it like phenomenology and you know Kantianism essentially moving on to kind of like the use of affects, a lot very similar to, in my opinion, Deleuze and Guattari. And then finally, he starts talking about language games, but still within what we were mentioning, these confinements of representation itself. Always trying to move away from them, but ultimately still coming back or still falling back on. You know
1: what? I, I'm glad you brought up phenomenology in this This sort of, it's the furthest thing that I would think of immediately from from a, a, a traditional, a standard discourse of phenomenology. But he is, he does have that Tradition and there's something interesting about it, right? That that discourse figure, as you were pointing out, this tension between the, the significative and the and the figural. That book was written almost 20 years after his first book, which was just called Phenomenology. Uh, he wrote that book in '54, and then there's this latency period if you will. Coop you might be able to say whether or not he was teaching in Algeria at the time or what that hiatus might have consisted in. But it's very similar to, to Deleuze, right? In, with writing his uh, you know his his book on Hume and then there is there's like this kind of decade of of silence and and it's it's not till the sort of early mid sixties that he, he picks up again and and really sort of starts to accelerate. So this this interesting incubation period of phenomenology turning itself inside out, I think is one of this, one of the products of this, uh, of Lobinol economy, his third book. It's interesting.
0: Okay. So, and this is just Wikipedia, but they mentioned in 1947, his thesis was indifference as an ethical concept, which analyzed forms of indifference and detachment in Buddhism, stoicism, Taoism. And I think most interestingly, epicureanism in 1950 is when he took up the teaching position Got teaching you. philosophy in in algeria and then returned to france in 52 and he taught at a military academy and that's where it, when he published the work on phenomenology in 1954
2: that's probably when he was at his most Mozart in ties Marxist. with <laughs> yeah. yeah most marxists i think well, interesting
0: it's, just to like back up yeah, well, to like before i just don't want to get too far into like nuts and bolts of the philosophy and theory elements, because I think there's a kind of a like broader discussion we can maybe briefly have about, I think in terms of political economy and like I was listening to a Benjamin Noyes uh, talk the other day, there's apparently in like 2019, they, there was a conference on labinal economy that both Noyes and Todd McGowan was there as well that uh, that might be interesting to go back and like delve into, but uh, something interesting that Noyes brought up that I think kind of coincided with kind of something I've said was... That, for example, in 72, you have anti-Oedipus, in 74, you have libidinal economy, and then in like 76, I think, is when Baudrillard published Symbolic Exchange and Death, rather. And I have often said that Symbolic Exchange and Death, rather, was Baudrillard's attempt at an an anti-Oedipus style, like political economies. And his praxis is primarily, which I think is in the last chapter, is like involves poetics primarily. Hmm. I don't have a good handle on that. I think maybe maybe Young Agamben might be able to fill in some of that. But, anyways, I just wanted to see what what everyone thought about that in in terms of the political economy and the sort of like this crisis of capitalism. You know, we sort of think that what the neoliberal period sort of kicks off in like seventy three is kind of like you know roughly, I don't know, maybe somewhere in between that sixty eight seventy three gap. Like something's happening. That sort of tide rolling back from sixty eight and then coinciding with like the economic crisis that occurs in the, in the early seventies that I think inspires a lot of this thoughts. <laughs>
1: one, one thing that I, one little fact just to bring in is, you know, Leotard started teaching at Paris eight with Deleuze in, in 1970. So I assume they would have had some, some interesting interactions and yeah. that alone would, you know, you could see how they, they would have influenced each other.
0: They had met at the Sorbonne earlier Mm, okay. I don't remember. I don't know the exact date, but I'm sure it was prior to their um, being colleagues. I guess it's sort of understood that someone like Leotard would have been attending Lacan seminars along with everyone else at the time in France. But obviously he was there. And I, I don't know. I think that's pretty interesting, too. And like seeing kind of like these points of departure, or like potential like lines of flight for like even La Laruel to kind of pick up this mantle. But I'll, uh, I'll hold off on going down that path too far. let see if young Agamben has anything to add.
3: I think the libidinal materialism thing, I think sometimes, or at least in my opinion, I think it gets kind of misinterpreted. I think you can easily draw the connection between like libidinal materialism and modern day accelerationism. Nick Land literally opens up one of the essays in Fang Numino with just a huge libidinal economy quote. I mean, it's like a major inspiration. And I think there's this mistake that what Deleuze and Guattari would call like this deterritorialization versus reterritorialization problem, I think that instead of taking it as like a concept of productive functioning it's taken as almost like a political paradigm like deterritorialization good basically like reduced yeah. to that like the idea of just deterritorializing itself is mistaken for a political project in and of itself. But if you just deterritorialize, you're basically just operating at the level of pure capital. In drawing the connection between like deterritorialization at the level of like, say what the individual and the level of the economy shows that at the end of the day, capital is sort of what is deterritorializing at the social level. What Ray Brazier said about Nick Land, that if you don't have an actual political praxis, then somebody is just going to come and fill that for you. If your political praxis is just deterritorialization, then whatever capitalist ideology is like currently withholding those product or is responsible for those productive forces will just come to fill whatever void you have there. You know what I mean? I think the political project is is like misinterpreted into this weird hyper capitalism.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's what the criticism of Deleuze and Guattari that I've heard is, is that everything that they are sort of saying can make you sort of a Better capitalist in a way, and I think mm-hmm. kind of cribbing that from like Todd McGowan's critique of of Deleuze and Guattari, which is is okay, but I don't know, if, I don't think they're like grasping everything that well.
1: I'll just be quick. That 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 seems a little disingenuous, precisely yeah. because they argue how capitalism is able to appropriate that which seemingly is resistant to it. So, mm-hmm. so you can mass market, you know, the Communist Manifesto and make a buck off of it they theorize that but anyway I cut somebody up I'm sorry
2: <laughs> no you're fine I was just going to add that um for example I think it's a thing we've done a lot of what points Deleuze and Guattari for example intersect with Leotard but I think it's also important to flush out like what separates their works because I think yeah. in that regard for example like Deleuze and Guattari I think it's obvious that in a way they're trying to save Lacan from Lacan
0: <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: nice love- uh, but as opposed to Leotard he's in a way trying to s- save Lacan from, or not even save, but kind of mining out or flushing out Freud from yeah. Lacan. Yeah. And you're know, using that to kind of flush out these libidinal intensities, really creating them as concrete, I want to say entities, but I, I almost want to hold back on saying something like that. Well, as opposed to Deleuze and Guattari. You know, their whole work, if anything, if you want to boil it down to something, I would just say it's a work of machines, right? Networking machines. And so in that difference, I almost want to say, like, Leotard, in a way, if not a Marxist, is way more of a materialist than Deleuze and Guattari.
0: Yeah, I would definitely agree that he's drawing, like, from more the, like, he's more directly incorporating Freud than Lacan, largely, other than maybe, like, here and there. But yeah, I definitely, and I want to get into that, I think, in terms of this, this discussion of topology but yeah Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, i just wanted to point one more thing which was that um i think that connection to freud also inevitably ties into a lot of nick land's work in terms of nick land's own influences in in freud in terms of i think mark Fisher. Flushes this out the best in his essay, um, Avatar versus Terminator, or Terminator versus Avatar, where he points out how. What, what does he say exactly? Essentially, what is accelerationism if not the death drive? Mine is what is his name, Bergson's vitalism, mm-hmm. and in that sense, it's like yeah, this is exactly what I would say someone like Leotard is pointing out, or is setting up the foundation for someone like Nick Land, for example, to build up their if you yeah. want to say political praxis or political project, which is not really a project it's more like just someone being really hard for deterritorialization. yeah
3: the thing that i think connects all of those things like you were saying cute is the idea of vitalism like the late freud is my favorite freud and i, I think beyond the pleasure principle is definitely like a highly vitalist text and the death drive is obviously then sort of reappropriated by these philosophers and that i know people do classify them as like neo-vitalists like definitely loyotard and losing and Guattari and i would say even nick land but i've always made that connection like casually like I, I, definitely think there's a vitalism to all of these texts, but I was wondering if you, you guys, if you guys like actually consider this vitalism. Like, do you think that there is almost like this, this new? Like, I, I liked what you said, where you're like, I don't want to call it entities. So, you know, what I mean, like, what is it? What is what is it that's vital that's connected across all of these thinkers? I don't, don't really know.
2: 100% agree with everything that you just said because in that term, you almost have to fall back onto the definition or that term of like the dispotif or whatever. You fall back on this third term. Precisely because, you know, if you f- go one way, you almost have to bite the vitalist bullet. But if you go the other way, you have to take that fascistic anti-bitalist Nick Land route, which, you know, it's a whole thing you could say it's like the black holes that Deleuze and Guattari warned about that easily fall into, you know, fascism back into the edible Triangle, if you want to narrow it down. I would say that Leotard and Deleuze and Guattari are neo or just vitalists. I don't know what implications that really holds.
0: Yeah. yeah,
1: that's
2: the thing.
0: We'll see. <laughs> Taylor, do you have any, do you have a response? for? The I mean, my, my way, question.
1: Yeah, just really quickly. You know, I think that we can, obviously we can throw around labels and, and there is a, obviously there's a strand of vitalism and, you know, just at least in Deleuze and Guattari, but at the same time, right, part of that, part of the reason why that's there and uh, why they are re it and re-problematizing it is, is the very fact that you know, in the 19th, 18th, 19th centuries, you do have this clash of mechanism, vitalism, and and also later on energeticism. So I, I, I see that those the tra- those traditions are interwoven in capitalism and schizophrenia, and this is partly why, like in the geology of morals plateau, they play off uh, Cuvier and um, what's his name Saint-Hilaire and sort of try to. Then it's kind of like distending vitalism to to this new sort of un you know it's this like this, an
2: unprecedented this, level of vitalism. It's a it's a kind
1: of neo formalism in that sense, right? Because the way that they try to rescue uh, Saint Hilaire and 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 his in that Darwin Lamarck kind of uh, circle of these thinkers of evolution creative evolution right so yeah I mean like with leotard if there's a vitalism it is deterritorialized into like an intensivism right it is about the circulation of intensities and how that informs our understanding of capital and political economy and why those are always already in dialogue the vitalism reproach has to be, you know really, we really do have to be very specific about what we mean because there's probably a number of lines in Deleuze and Guattari that are going to complicate that specifically either with the machinic you know ontology or whatever it may be. Thinking I should read perhaps
0: the dispositif, definition Mm, that's included in the hamilton just to set the stage and i think i'll do that and then libidinal band because i want to kind of segue into this discussion of the of this kind of striated or flattened out body the two-dimensionalizing of the body that leotard is going into which is i think directly like cute said this is drawing largely on freud and i think was it a young agamben that mentioned beyond the pleasure principle Yes. Just late Freud, rather, and just as a side note, that would probably be a great reading to sort of prepare for <laughs> libidinal economy. And I don't know if anyone had. I mean, obviously, probably what beyond the pleasure principle, anti is. Do you think is it necessary to engage with anti Oedipus at all? Or I oh, think you mean j- if, to have read
1: it? To have read it? Yeah,
0: just to like. F- I you think know, it's very it's very rich. Just to kind of enrich your understanding
1: of especially those sections in anti where they are directly using the Freudian language of Thanatos, right. Eros, Like they yeah. are. Yeah. I mean this, this notion of the late Freud and, and the kind of vitalism, especially a BPP that is that's spot on, um, but, which you guys were, were bringing up earlier, but you, did you want to read the, the... I, I will in a second. I just was
0: curious if you had, uh, I think maybe you might be our best source for like recommendations on what's going to improve your experience with libidinal economy on the reading front from the context of like, you know what I mean? From the context of like Dilla's and like,
1: I would say uh, BPP is definitely there. But one thing that um, if we wanted to juxtapose the early and the late Freud, I definitely think the three essays on sexuality is important for this opening chapter. The, I mentioned earlier the notion of the polymorphously perverse and that's where I mean, Freud does revise this. I think it's 1905. The three essays throughout his life and adds on, and so the Oedipus comes in and some other kind of equivocations, if you will. But if you but if you follow just the the early version, the 1905 version, it's very clear that Freud is attacking a Victorian sensibility about sex, about what constitutes perversion, yeah. and like he's the, pushing
0: a yeah. repressive hypothesis kind
1: of yeah. vibe. And he, and and really quickly, just he pushes to the limit this notion that the sex organs should be uh, exclusively used for reproduction, and he he calls into question Victorian um, like he'll he say, well, isn't it kind of gross that we kiss each other in order to simulate the sexual drives? Like, uh, why are the in why the extreme the extremities of our you know gastrointestinal system this this embrace of external mucous membranes he wants to say well isn't that perverse so he he does push he pushes the victorians to to face their hypocrisy when it comes to and really it has a political and juridical aspect he'll he'll talk about the kind of outlawed um forms of, of of sexual interaction including sodomy and these other things and and Freud is is very I think in that sense he's kind of a firebrand in that in those three essays by wanting to call out call into question what's what what's normal uh sexually
0: yeah I think that's interesting in the context of I've read and I have to find a source for this but that a woman's nipples are like the nerve endings are tied to their clitoris or Whenever like there's a similar, I don't know, it's it's a similar like neurological brain, you know, part of the brain that's stimulated whenever the breast is like sucked. So if you really think about that in the context of like of Oedipus and like and sex and what's like you said, what's normal or or not, uh, I think that's kind of an interesting.
1: Well, if you think about the the organs that the external organs that that engorge during sexual arousal i mean obviously the penis but the clitoris the nipples that's that's the rush of blood to the yeah. to the surface right and and so yeah you're you i mean smile. the lips the yeah.
0: lips also flush mm-hmm. as well yep.
1: too which is kind of an inter-
0: i guess to expose, all the, to expose the clitoris
2: right <laughs> yeah, yeah to that dual metaphor that's funny Just reminds me of that one <laughs> just to kind of ship post when jordan peterson was like why do women wear makeup <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, what was the what, what was the follow up? I think the vice interviewer pressures him on it, like because they want to look prettier. They just because they feel like wearing makeup. And he's like, "Well, I'm not too sure." kind of insinuating <laughs> that like there is this like essential sexual behavior or whatever you want to call it. Like these, they are clear signs of yeah, sexual exactly. Uh,
0: he wants to objectify, or he wants to have a one to one relation between signifier and sign, and mm. not realize that like those signifiers are kind of floating like there's a viscous relationship <laughs> between signifier and that even goes yeah. like if we wanted to we could like go on a long discussion of of de and and proust and signs and kind of how he kind of says i forget what the line is but it's something about like mistaking mistaking those external signs for the object itself or like yeah. you know
1: what i mean that's that's good and i was just really good quickly i i you know who doesn't try to put on their best face when they are you know yeah, at work when, or whatever, when, right? Yeah, I mean, like, guys do it too. It's, yeah. it, oh, absolutely, it's, yeah. What's wearing a
0: suit or working out or yeah, shaking sure. your hair, or like, any of that shit, it's all. Exactly. But that's, I mean, how, how much is that falling back into, like, this libidinal economy, this, like, one unified drive of death and life?
1: You know, it's, it's interesting, right, where it's, like, I, I know that um, nowadays my wife really only puts on um, eye makeup. Because when she's going out, she's gonna she's gonna have that mask. The amount of effort that goes into and the, obviously the, the even the surface area of the of the work to be done is is really restricted to that that uh, uh A to, topology to of the face even yeah. like yeah. how it's, that it's, relates to mm-hmm.
0: faciality too right
1: exactly. So it's when I talk to her about it, it's not necessarily like I want to be desired as an object, right? It, it's it's more. I also, I think for her primordially, it's it's I want to put on my best face and therefore have a confidence of like just being out in the world because we know we're going to be seen, we know our faces are going to have that interaction. That already is like a, you know, like an RPG game. It's like a huge buff to, to charisma and, and and confidence and, and just initiative. Uh, so,
0: how much of that though circles back to desire being the desire of the other. Mm -hmm. Right. Like what's more validating, what's more validating than to be sexually desired by anyone. That's one of the Mm. most validating thing. I mean, I don't know. You might even say that's like, I mean, I would even be so bold as to say like, that's kind of like what this libidinal economy is, is pointing towards is that kind of like this kind of baseless or this directionless drive without teleology that it's just like bashing through barriers, kind of in the right. sense that Deleuze and Guattari or this unleashing of desire has potential.
3: It's like you said earlier in your qualification, like it's not even like these one-to-one relationships of desire to its, you know, or erogenous zone to specific signifier. You know what yeah. I mean? Everything has a partial object of desire in it. You know, it's funny that Freud, for a long time, he was like really good friends with this quack doctor who thought the nose literally connects to the penis, like biologically. And they really went all in on it and it kind of just ended up being quack material. But that's like sort of like the remedial logic of when you realize the connection between desire and signification, that like remedial one-to-one logic. And then the Bindle economy were to the point where it's like, everything has this slight ratio to your desire. You know, like even in the signification, obviously advertising is entirely based on that fact. How can you direct this almost universal unfolding of desire into very specific partial objects?
0: Yeah, and that's where I see kind of like, you know, a lot of people say you can't cohabitate Lacan's desire with Deleuze and Guattari, but I don't know. I'm I'm not so sure that you can't kind of, at least in a in a sort of buggery type sense, connect those two <laughs> in a productive I mean, fashion.
2: In that sense, you could. Ju- I mean, I'm not the biggest like Lacan buff, but in that sense, you could bring in Deleuze and Guattari's like machinic ontology and let's yeah. Like- that's the whole point you know it's, right it's, it's like the individuals
0: yeah exactly it's like this individual desire plugs into this there's also there's like individual desire that's sort of influenced by lack and then there's also this machinic process and maybe that's part of this the libidinal band there's like di- different sides of the same thing or like of desire yeah. itself has like that kind of i don't know it's not it's not like to get into Larwell with the like non non-Euclid- it's non Euclidean in that sense right it can those the band kind of kind of bends over to where those two things can kind of merge or I don't know
3: yeah talking- I, I make that <laughs> like I I that I mean I, I'm sort of I try not to like fully subscribe that this is like a one to one relationship but I sort of see the ephemeral skin like that libidinal economy idea is sort of the substitute for Deleuze and Guattari's, like you're saying, like machines connected to machines, like the machines, like they have the semiotic machines going, you know, interacting with one another, so to speak. But in the Liotardian way, it's like this big skin that we're all a part of that's being inscribed upon. When when something's inscribed upon what looks like outside of us, it's actually inside of us, you know, it's like inscribed mm-hmm. upon our bowels. Like instead of machines, it's this big skin, but at the same I kind of use those as like interchangeable, but I think that obviously is way too reductive for what Leotard's is trying to do. Cause there's a reason he uses skin instead of like just adopting the machinic
0: yeah, that's
3: uh, sort of like metaphor that those in right. guitar use. So it's obviously not like, Oh yeah, this is just my version of it. But to me, that's like where I draw the, the similarities of their metaphor.
1: Right. I like this notion that you brought up about inscribing on the skin, because it's, it's, it's good to remember that um, since we were, we're sort of in dialogue with anti Oedipus a little bit, you know, they, they want to show that lack scarcity is not the, it's not the primary element, right? If, if there is a primary element to the circulation of desire, it's, it's marking its inscription, right? It's the notion that cruelty is the movement of culture on bodies. And like the, the first markings, like the first thing to happen is like planning these flags and bodies in this kind of, te- this territorialization that, that will allow for, for the circulation of signs.
3: Yeah, like the first signs are sort of like in the idea of faciality, it just kind of like the creasing of skin or just like slight muscle movements is sort of the first substitution of, of something for meaning. It's literally bodily inscription before moving to the substitution of language.
2: I think what you guys brought up in terms of the, I'm gonna call it the Movia strip, but <laughs> in regards to the Movia strip and its connection to, I think what, I think he calls it the bar, I'm not quite sure. He does have that, the bar. that yeah, part. of yeah. the terminology. <laughs> he has that uh, distinction in so far as, for example, like the bar. I think he refers to it as that which creates or is govern. Oh, I don't want. I got govern,
0: the definition up here. If you wanna- Do you want to read it? Or? Yeah, I'll read it. Okay, so the bar. Um, defined as if we imagine the libidinal band as having one surface, white-hot, labyrinthine, and aleatory, then the bar is to be seen as the operator of disintensification, which in slowing down allows the displaceability and non-identity of the drives slash pulsions and intensities to be arrested and given a designation and signification. It is through procedures of exclusion, notably negation and exteriorization, that the bar gives birth to the conceptual process, twisting the ban into what Leotard calls the theatrical volume, dividing up what takes place on the ban into a this and not this and a not this. The bar, as it cools down, accounts for the series of conceptual frontiers, distinguish the ideal and the real, the authentic and the alienated, the useful and the exchangeable, the normal and the perverse, etc., it should be noted that for leotard, the bar and the band are nevertheless one and the same. When the bar thus rotates, or when the bar rotates in a al- furious, aleatoria fashion, we have something like the libidinal band. When the bar slows down, we have something like the theatrical volume. Why the bar slows down is a question peculiar to representational thinking, itself an effect of the cooling bar.
2: I guess what I was trying to point out with that definition of the bar is that, it pains me to do this, but I feel like the movius strip in a way is leotard's body without organs yeah. without mm-hmm. him mm-hmm. exclusively or ex- explicitly saying this and in that sense you know if the bar is governed by it almost seems like like this binary logic binary logic between you know this not this in a lot of ways that reminds me of you know that property of the body without or- organs to kind of repel i don't exactly remember what mm-hmm. they write in anti but in a way At one end, you have the Movius strip or the libidinal band, which is the most or the strongest intensification of these libidinal, you know, intensities or whatever you want to call them. And then at the other end, you have the bar, which would be the highest degree of these systems of logic, I would say these systems of you could call it what Deleuze calls like the when you construct the brick house of reason essentially Mm -hmm. with the brick the concepts bricks being the concepts i think that's what leotard is showing it on one end you have this theater this bolognese theater which you fill up with whatever you know you can create a system at infinitum to describe the world as it is outside but at the same time you have this interior, this libidinal, these libidinal intensities that are, you could say, are part of the interior, and yeah. these two are just supposed somewhere in the middle, combining the two to, you know, kind of point out, you can't explain the libidinal intensities without the systemic structure, but at the same time, the systemic structures, or whatever you want to call them, are produced besi- exactly because of these libidinal intensities.
3: Yeah, I think also the bar is created, like you're saying, by the the distinction between inside and outside, which is arbitrary, you know, is what Lloyd argues. used. There is no outside or inside, you know, that first chapter is sort of like the, the vision of it. Everything is already internal to yourself. And then the bar, like the volume of the thing you're creating is then the body without organs, like you're saying. So there's this potentiality of being anything. And then the actual need to conceptualize by being like, oh, actually, I'm not that makes you into whatever, or yeah, is like that. That's the conceptual limit. That's also the material limit of self understanding, or like the volume of the body itself.
0: Can anybody answer how much this would be related to? I have this up a little bit, like the the barred subject in Lacan. I mean, is that a direct reference, or is he kind of like remixing the barred subject as the bar or? Like what interplay does that have obviously leotard is is aware right of
1: primarily it's right above it's it's more the Caesarian bar right between signifier and signified mm-hmm. that would be my guess based on you know uh discourse figure and um and that interest rather than, but there's no way he would have been able to escape whether he attended yeah. the lectures or right. not. The, the, the notion of a Lacon. hard subject, which, which Lacan does get from Saussure and develops in his own way. Right. I also think about the bar in terms of the Mobius strip as, as we, as we talked about it, right. If the Mobius strip is a, is a, is a surface with like a single curve and then it's transposed in a three dimensional space. So it has this, this one sidedness, I wonder, I'm wondering if that, if that single curve, you know, insofar as the movie show itself is, um, well, that's not important. It seems like the bar then might have some of the same effect, right. For that one little bump in the road, if you will. But at the same time, as he says, there, there's something interesting about the bar where we can't, where it, it seems to be conflated with, with the effects of it. Right. So it's, it's hard to, to be able to distinguish it itself conceptually precisely because it's interior in some way, right? It's the white hot and the cooling down. Uh, that, that question of intense intensification and disintensification.
0: If nobody has anything to add, I want to go through it. I'll do uh the definition of that, and then libidinal band at least. The dispotif, although this term is conventionally rendered as setup, apparatus, and the like, this gives us a somewhat banal me- mechanistic picture of Le- Leotard's efforts. In Des dispositifs de we find the following passage. The positivity of these investments must be affirmed rather than the disparity and exclusion they produce. The positivity rather than the dis of dispositif, it is the production of new libidinal operators that is positive. The positif is also a positing, an investment. The dispositif, a disposition to invest, a cathexis, As such, the dispositif is subject to economic movements and displacements, an aspect which the retention of the French term by combining the displace with the dispose, movement with expenditure helps to convey. So that's dispositif. And then the libidinal band slash skin. The band, which has most importantly, neither an inside nor an outside, is most easily comparable to what Freud called the primary process of the pulsions of the psychical apparatus. It could be considered a sort of analogical presentation of difference independent of the secondary orders of representation, in which identity, signification, and reference are all determined or are determined. Although the Libindle Band allows Leotard to show what is necessarily excluded by representational thinking, it's not to be considered descriptively true, since the model would then collapse back onto re representation, but as more forceful and more interesting and more inventive than previous totalizations of the real. As a kind of persuasive fiction, the various descriptions of the band wish nevertheless to account for the closures and exclusions inherent to representational thinking and suggest a pagan manner of affirming the differences and singularities that run through the libidinal band in an aleatory and indeterminate fashion. And I mean, I think that last bit is like very, very Deleuze and Guattari, right? like the, I also, uh, I like this the pagan, pagan manner the pagan yeah. manner of affirming the differences and singularities that run through the libidinal band in this alatory, right, permanent
1: fashion this attack on political theology is this is very reminiscent of the attack on psychoanalysts as the new priests
2: yeah. I think he goes into it a bit in chapter 1 where he starts talking about the pagan let me see I think it's like section 2 of chapter 1
1: yeah he definitely brings it up in the early pages
3: I like the the sort of there's like a meta project here of this like style of theory, or at least what this theory sets itself out to do, which I think is really interesting, where it sort of like builds in its own entropy. So to speak, like instead of working towards like this thing that's supposed to exist forever in totality, like a philosophical system that's going to be completely totalizable of reality. The idea of even writing a book like libidinal economy is that this is a re-territorialization of what I've experienced as deterritorialization. Like I've deterritorialized Freud, I've deterritorialized these specific concepts, but I need to re-territorialize them in order to explain the process of deterritorialization that took place but the idea is even my reterritorialization will be deterritorialized you know there's an entropy to my own writing that i expect you to like go through your own process of deterritorializing these concepts and then yeah. you have to kind of come back and reterritorialize it yourself but yeah. it goes back to that like operative hypocrisy of it all you know the idea is like i'm writing this to explain something to you but I'm writing also to provide you a logic with how to basically deconstruct what I'm saying, which is the necessary process, the meta process, almost mm-hmm. like the meta ethical process at work here.
0: Yeah. I mean, it definitely calls back that like Deleuze's quote about, you know, a concept is a brick.
2: I think the book that ties or at least might be relationally more connected to what you just said young was uh, a thousand plateaus. Like the book itself, you can, you know, it's like a rhizome. It's like, well, the libidinal economy itself should be treated like a rhizome to use to lose right. language. It's like, what interpretation do you have of libidinal economy in that sense?
1: By the way, cute. Um, yeah. I think it's that second section. It's called pagan theatrics. So that's where I think the the term first gets used in uh, the book beyond the translator's intro but he, he does, I think even before that, he, he starts to what make equivalent the movement of capital and political theology. I was trying to look for that, but that was the, maybe, maybe it was in that section itself.
2: Like if you take this, I, th- I don't know if it was you or if it was Jung that mentioned like the meta-theology attack. Mm-hmm. Like in that sense, like, you know, the Judeo-Christian idea of God, if you were to directly connect that with like Lacan or like Freud, for example, like, you know, the Oedipal structure. Mm -hmm. Um, to take this to the, its ultimate conclusion, like the, the pagan god, what he's trying to do with paganism is to kind of break that apart, break that system apart and, you know, it's like have a goddess or a god for, you know, every moment or for everything. It's like this purification of these, you know, material, you could say material moments, actions, whatever, directly related to these concepts and or these concepts would be stand-ins for god or whatever, you, or gods, I should say, these pagan entities.
1: I love the the stuff about the uh, the Augustine quote, right? And then he he talks about the for the pagans, it's Dionysus and Bacchus, right? So that brings us kind of back to, to what we were talking about earlier about the the Dionysian and the Apollonian, which I always found interesting that Apollo's got a prophecy because the sibyls had to get super fucked up on whatever drugs, whether it be the I mean, there's there's reports that it was some. Uh, they got they got high off the gas coming from the, the, the volcanic you know strata you know seeping up but that's the dementia and the amentia that he brings up where is this this is page nine the great the great uh, singularities of Dionysus and Bacchus I was going to look up amentia. Severe congenital mental handicap. Okay, that's fun. So yeah, I guess if dementia is losing one's mind or going out of one's mind, then amentia would be lacking a mind altogether. Amentia. Yeah, this is on page nine at the at the bottom when he's talking about Dionysus and Bacchus and he links Dementia and Amentia. The men's right, the the mind the movement of force becomes commotion of the spirit and soon dementia and amentia
3: <laughs> there is a part of me that thinks there's something that is reactionary about the fact that Duluth and Guattari spent years being like no we don't mean literal schizophrenics to try and like kind of save their reputation because people are like oh you think you think madmen are like revolutionaries basically and they're like no it's like a different process or whatever that kind of limited the actual like taking their logic to the conclusion that the madman like is a re- revolutionary You know, Mm -hmm. they kept being being like, no, 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 we mean something different. And I feel like that was like almost completely like egocentric because every French philosopher was just like, oh, you're just literally putting crazy people as the vanguard of the revolution. And they just tried to be like, no, 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 different process. You know, they're like major distinction between clinical and theoretical schizophrenia.
1: Yeah, I do think that that was one of the, the, you're right, the the greatest misunderstandings that they faced was. Somebody just well, posted something
0: about that actually. Oh yeah. Forget somebody posted a quote about that.
1: I posted the,
0: I him? posted the, yeah, I posted, it was
1: from the, um, gosh, it was from one of those seminars I translated. I can't remember which, but he, I think it was the the first one on the foreign Unconsciouses where he, he's talking to his students and he makes that joke that basically that's exactly what Young said, right? It's, um, it's, oh, you, you think that the, the schizos are, are revolutionaries and, um, You know, I I think for him, you're right, there is this easy ability to to justify medical and and, and clinical specifications and classes, even these global kind of entities of the schizo who would be, you know, drugged up and and, and sort of um, narcotically subdued by, you know, a kind of carceral system, if you will, Um, and Foucault is obviously important here too versus what they are trying to do by taking taking neurosis and, and paranoia and schizophrenia to their logical limits as movements of history. I think that's part of where... Obviously, we can. They can be critiqued for that, and whether or not they did a good enough job. I think that that it's obviously an uphill battle because it does it, it does try to elicit the resistance of psychoanalytic categories and, and the and, and and psychoanalytic thinkers who would not recognize those concepts anymore. It's a risk, right? It's a risk reward thing.
3: I know. I don't think they were ready to take that like professional risk, but there's like. There's a good part of me that's like, yeah, the catatonic schizophrenic, as they call them, is like Mm -hmm. the cosmological revolutionary, you know? They were right. Like, their logic is sound. They just weren't really willing to say it because it's like that career was on the line. People thinking they were literally talking about schizophrenics. They made this huge mystification thing going on where it's harder for me to take it to that logical point, that they actually are revolutionaries, than to be like, okay, so how am I supposed to, like, completely separate your schizophrenia from... Schizophrenia, like, as we commonly know it, as like a medical.
0: How much of this is just like trying to get beyond like our human subjectivity?
1: Right. Just to fill the, the space for a second, I, I totally agree with what Jung is, is talking about. And I, I think that you're sort of onto it, Coop. It's maybe, you know, it's precisely because they're worried about the schizophrenic with like a capital, you know, the uh, being taken as a global person. Yeah. Which is where, which is, which already gets us back into mommy, daddy, me, and, and then trying to understand it as like an intensive process that mm-hmm. is, is connected to its own, to these different territorial machines, right? And that's, and that's why obviously, like, you know, for me, And and for a lot of people, I think that some of the most interesting parts of anti-Oedipus is obviously chapter three, where they go back to Nietzsche and the genealogy of morals. And, uh, and it's this, it's this question of a universal history. Right. And, and, and then, you know, chapter one gives us a little bit of the, uh, of a taste of this machinism. uh, And then chapter two is obviously that, that polemic against uh, psychoanalysis, but also against linguistics, specifically Caesarian linguistics. And, um, you know, which is why it's in this tradition with Lyotard of negotiating what a post-structuralist usage of Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche would would look like.
2: I want to ask a question for you guys before we move on, because I think Taylor, what you mentioned made me think of this, which I think was directly commenting on what Young, you just said, um, which was, uh, you know, how much of this is going back to Oedipus in that sense. I don't know if you guys know that I have the same feelings about Nick Land in regards to, I don't know, Genon, Gnon or whatever. You know, it's supposed to be this non, it's the outside, right? That's what he uses it as that, that signifier. But at the end of the day, the way he talks about capitalism and the way that he talks about AI the process of capitalism as AI is he not falling back on the same anthropocentric (laughs) vision that he's so adamant about critiquing yeah I mean I think
0: I said he could have been and I posted this earlier this morning about he could have he fucked himself by not taking Lacan seriously and really left as a big blind spot I think for
3: it's funny, though, that, like, Deleuze and Guattari in, I'm sure it's a thousand plateaus in the body without organs section, literally, like, predict the Nick Land pipeline. Right. are like yeah, If you become a body without organs too quickly, if you territorialize, uh, yes. you always re-territorialize back on to, like, a fascist. And it's just so you, funny yeah. that, okay, that's exactly what happened. This dude took it, you know, they use like... They think drugs are like a way to do that. If you become a body without organs through drugs, it's basically going to cause the same thing. It's just funny that like he can be so into Deleuze Guattari and then literally become like almost the satire that become a parody of of literally what they said would happen. I'm just like, how can you let that happen? He's literally like, just like taking... Yeah, go
2: ahead. I was go ahead. just going to mention, that, like his whole etiology, and it's like, bro, <laughs> it's literally just a teleology. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, like the way that he... I think this is my biggest gripe with Nick Landon. I'm, this could be a whole separate issue. I don't want to spend too much time in it because I know it just seems like If you even read like Genealogy of Morals, that to me seems way more in line with Accelerationism Mm -hmm. (laughs) than even Mm -hmm. some of Nick Land's own work, at least in like in recent history. uh, Like the stuff that he's doing now with Neo Reaction, just if anything, it's like a revert back to, you know, some of his humanist. Yeah, there's like a confusion there.
3: Like the Neo Reaction almost is in a weird way a what would you call it like a rebellion against capital like his political project of like if you wanted accelerationism like you should just be like really into the idea of joe biden winning basically you know what i mean (laughs) but he supports like political projects that lower the ability for capital to accelerate itself you live in china you know what i mean like it would be better (laughs) if china could like be trading right now that would be like more accelerationist than like breaking down the global economy just there's so there's like a weird almost like schizo yeah politics going on where it's like simultaneously he believes two things and he's you have to edible, hypocrisy man. yeah yeah He's, he's the humanist the, or the, triangle, anti- the humanist. which yeah. one is it today
1: <laughs> right it, it does seem to be a, a a contradiction or a conflict between his interests and his investments as you know <laughs> you know <laughs> and the, the conscious nice conscious interests and unconscious investments and um what i was thinking of cute saying about sneaking in the anthropocentrism that just, or that, that maybe just sneaks in after the fact is in an, a 1980 essay, Laurel writes about, he, it's called Homo Ex Machina, uh, man at a man out of machine. And he ends the essay after going through this, this history of the culmination of biopolitics, you know, with Descartes, Nietzsche, Foucault, um, this notion of a superior racism that is devoid of all everyday racial content or expression and I just wonder if that's kind of the thing where Nick was heading you can see early on and then it just takes that that right turn and totally misses it and and there is this constitution of accelerated superior racism except it contain it like retains the superiority of of its racial uh expression and content and and so it kind of misses the it kind of well you could say it, it kind of confuses the the forest for the trees or something uh you know to be stupid about it
2: like hbd with hbd with all of the nationalistic tendencies that is coupled with it
0: which can sort of take us back into this formulation that um freud had like one of his first topological interventions we might say Ah, okay gotcha like his intervention in the topology i think this page even goes to it he's got a graph from like 1899 just kind of like his First adventure, but then the second one I think is maybe from the interpretation of dreams. Well,
1: 1899 would have been when he wrote interpretation of dreams. Gotcha. If okay. that, if the first so that's probably the it, first part of it, yeah. yeah.
0: And then this is a more div- 22, that would be post that'd be around
1: BPP. I'm not, yeah, uh, because he wrote that after World War One. It might be right after that or, or around the same time. But you can kind of see
0: the evolutionary, like the, gen- the generous of this kind of libidinal band motif that 1920 right, the leotards working with right in this like very simple so in this graph I'm looking at is a topography from 1922 and we've got we've got a repression we've got the id we've got the ego I'm not sure what all the other demarcations on are necessarily, but I mean, I think you, it's a gesture towards what I think Lacan kind of picks up l- later on. Well, per- there's discussed. perception consciousness system. Okay. I got
1: gotcha. you. Right. That's the skin of the ego. That's the surface. And then the pre-conscious, right. Which uh, okay. is always kind of in a, uh, it's, it's, it straddles that liminal border of the, of consciousness and, and uh, the unconscious. And yeah. So uh, This is very interesting, but yeah, as you said, he'll, he'll, he's not going to be happy with, he's not going to stick with this model. It'll just be, but he, at this time, especially, he was much more susceptible to to saying everything should be collapsible, that if we're going to speculate, we should, we should do so with a kind of tentativeness and ability to, to throw things out when they, when they aren't working. Ford's a complex guy. He's, he's, he's a, he's a good, he's all right. He's a good kid. It's seminar, Lacan seminar 12 is where he
0: is first really, and this like later gets developed whenever he gets into his Boromian knot period. Mm. But I think it's in in seminar 12 where he discusses the Mobius strip and the Klein bottle, which is veering into that kind of non-Euclidean geometry that I was discussing earlier that very much evokes the the libidinal band, right? Mm -hmm. And this like notion of I think even the discussion of like the body being cut up by signs kind of goes misdirection as well. But like this sort of flattening out of the three dimensional body into a 2D plane yeah. or does that have anything to do to go back to Deleuze and Guattari? How much does that have to do with anything along the lines of, is that like, is that striation or is that, um, i trying to think what the other term would be.
1: Well, I was thinking more stratification in terms of okay, gotcha. the play of the bar, right? right. And how yeah. they say they say destratification precedes the strata, right? And so that's it. and I think Leotard is very much close to this yeah. as well with, with the play of the bar and the intensity. Yeah, he sort
3: of just substitutes the word. Uh, what was the word that he uses? Oh, it's sedimentarization instead mm-hmm. of uh, the Lewis and Qatari terminology. But I feel like it's the same general concept. Like I got mm-hmm. that too. Just the idea of sedimentary versus the, just complete unfolding.
0: I think what's really cool there is that like non-Euclidean aspect of the outside and the inside sort of being these parallel lines that converge on the body without organs or on the libidinal band or whatever.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, Samuel Doan brings up, it's at the end of the biological section right before the psychical section. So it had been, it, it had been, and in fact that last chapter, it appears when he talks about topology and a non-Euclidean topology all the, the rest of the sections were uh, not included in the 64 version that Deleuze would have read, but he would have seen the end of the book about topology. And, and Simon says something very interesting about how you can take biology and chemistry and these other physical sciences that are investigating life, these life sciences. And maybe one of the problems with this attempt to kind of create life ex nihilo is the very fact that it's still too wrapped up in considering Euclidean geometry and including forms. And he, he throw he, he includes Gestalt psychology in this too and why it fails. Uh in its privileging of stable forms. And he'll say that in fact what needs what we need to be more sensitive to is a non Euclidean topology. And it's only then that we can even theorize really constituting life, so to speak.
0: Leotari even uses what is it? Gestalt Yeah.
2: He does, now that you mention it, it's funny because Gestalt's I don't know, you want to call it like Kantian psychology in a lot of ways would be this, how'd I say it? Like applying phenomenology to the social sciences in a way, kind of like determining how how you can create or define the social sciences within the realm of phenomenology, like the categories, you could call it or illustrated in the way of the Kantian categories, like what are the basic you know, representations of sociology, for example, or biology, et cetera. And even phenomenology itself to some extent, you know, what designates or what creates those categories themselves. And in a lot of ways, I think with Leotard's Movia strip, it kind of eludes that or kind of tries to shift the hard rigidity of a system or the categorical uh, categorization of like these rigid systems or categories or whatever you want to call them and more into like those libidinal structures or intensities, which is to say there are these material conditions or there are, there are these material representations of how those Categories, formula, or form in the first place. I I don't know. I I don't know if you guys want to add something to that, but yeah, I think that's a good point. That like
3: science sort of determines the band. Like there's a Heisenberg quote where reality is like not reality as such. Reality is up to our interpretation of it or, or our method of questioning reality. The Mobius band is determined by the conceptual limitations we have to understand basically everything. That sort of like sedimentarization is limiting the ability to comprehend things that are just not. Currently, in our sort of wheelhouse of methodological questioning, so to speak, I think like the same exact philosophical system there is the band is limited by like the Heideggerian thing of however you question being, however you question what the be what the strip is, is going to determine the band, right? Like, whatever your conceptual vision of what the entire band, the entire Mobius strip is, is the band, right? The actualization of. of the potential sort of ability to comprehend it it's like what you have at the moment what are your
2: conceptual tools conceptual exactly what is your conceptual toolbox that's what reality is just connecting it back to that you know that spinning or the rotation of the movius strip itself it's like i think leotard is kind of addressing with the distinction between like the movius strip and the the bar itself which is like the bar is exactly it's like it's this but not this, or it's not Mm -hmm. this, but it's this in a lot of ways. That's like rigid logical structuring or systematization. Well, the opposite would be like you know that livid null intensification what exactly that means that's all internal that would be that these two the externalization of these systems and the internalization of these livid null say desires both of these are necessary necessary to kind of do a whole picture a whole uh, i don't know what conceptualization you would make, what call it? conceptualization yes
1: mm-hmm.
2: and i think that in a way if i if i just want to revert back to i come at this from a very like staunch Kantianism. <laughs> I guess in a lot of ways, this to me seems. I, I guess I would say that Nick himself would say that this is kind of like naive using these models or these. The whole notion of the Movia strip would be kind of like naive because it's still using t- conceptual tools of the theater to create an illustration or a representation of what's outside the theater, and and it's like you're already you're already naming the thing in sure. itself sure. when it's not i guess a kantian would say that's not possible you only have that like intuition that there is a thing in itself but you don't know what that exactly that is yeah i got you so yeah. in that theater metaphor it's like going is that
0: gesturing back towards like the plato's cave metaphor at all or mm-hmm. am i am i off base
2: i think if anything that's what kant's whole project is no it's just kind of saving plato from like it's my- mysticism or I don't know what you would want to call it, but it's kind of like, I guess my interpretation of Kant is that Kant is just like a really dedicated Platonist, if anything. I don't know if you guys get the same vibe, Kant is just a Platonist. Kant
3: is sort of like brought into Loyotard in that he's he kind of affirms to a certain extent that yes, like Kant sort of like gets to the metaphysical limit of the noumenal distinction, like that's his inside-outside. And of course like Lyotard says you have to define yourself conceptually by what you're not, you know like an n-1 type situation. But the the exclusion of something doesn't mean it's necessarily outside of you. It's sort of what Lyotard I think is trying to say. Just because something might be like not accessible to you with your current ability to conceive it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, you know what I mean? It doesn't mean that that thing is outside of yourself. It's just not comprehensible to yourself at that moment your volume can't fill that particular space on the mobius
0: strip i wonder how that plays into like the unco- how the unconscious operates or at least from like the kind of fundamental maybe a fundamentalist psychoanalysis right the unknowable aspects of oneself that you know the bits of oneself that escape signification the singularity the you know again to go back to sterner like the creative nothing or the i or whatever that like even right, the eye doesn't necessarily uh, something interesting Deleuze said about the eye was like, it's a, it doesn't refer back to anything but itself. Right. Which I think is kind of interesting. Well, yeah. the, the,
1: what, what, what Young was talking about is, is this, you know, due to the play of conceptualization and representativity as the bar cools down on the band. Um, and we're sort of always already in that sphere in which exclusive disjunction, you know, uh, The principle of the excluded middle and and logic takes place. And that's when we fall into that manner of thinking and reasoning whereby the I, non-I starts to take place, right? And I think that, as you know, Coop, as you write about the unconscious, you know, Freud throughout his work, but especially during the war with his essays on negation and on the unconscious, he wants to talk about how the unconscious doesn't, doesn't understand or recognize negation. Is precisely why it also doesn't understand and recognize death and we could say with like Nietzsche it's precisely the death of God that takes so long to wind its way through the unconscious precisely because of that that inability to distinguish and recognize negation and that leaves yeah. us
0: at the place where we have to do the same thing how long before the, the dissolution of man or humanness makes its way through the unconscious
3: I like the idea of the zero there where like negation doesn't just leave you in some sort of negative situation. It reminds me of like that Pynchon epigraph I sent you of beyond the zero, the idea of like death itself, like the negation of life. It's, it's not just like a subtraction back to zero. Like it moves right. through the zero. Once you die, you reach that zero. Like there's still matter, you know what I mean? Yeah. You're still like producing phosphorus. There's an existence beyond death that's beyond the zero, so to speak. The negation doesn't lead to just like complete zero it's like a movement through the zero into something new rather than just pure negation
0: it's traveling along the gradient and that heat like that Mm -hmm. dissipation i forget what what is that called whenever you're like moving across a membrane
1: it's fucking
2: osmosis maybe osmosis well that's with
1: water especially but there might be a more general term but yeah we can just use that
0: there's like osmosis until it hits of like that point zero right between the two mm. bar- between the two membranes or something like.
1: Well, that that would be an equilibrium, a type right. of equilibrium. Mm-hmm. But it's kind on, of this yeah. is more like that
0: sloshing back and forth of move, movement across the membrane. I guess I don't know
1: permeability and
3: yeah. stuff like
0: that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Right.
3: And even yeah. if like it'll like the membrane will break down all of this sedimentary. Sort of notions you have about yourself, like you can be like, when I die, it's just going to be nothingness. I'm going to be nothing. But the membrane doesn't really care. It's going to take what matters left of you and recycle it, whether or not your idea about it, whether you have an idea about it or not. Zero operates without your, without your like sedimentary like territorializations about yourself mattering in any real way.
1: This reminds me, just real quick, of Lucretius's materialism when he. Talks about the soul as the lightest atoms, and they're going to be the first to. Because he thinks about the body uh, as a composite that's like a like a sealed jar, and once you mm-hmm. die, that jar, it, it's airtight, lockness, you know, sort of unravels, and the first uh, the first atoms to leave are are the the lightest, the soul. And so he says, one can but die, one cannot be dead. I think that goes back to what you were saying about the the zero. Yeah, I'm yeah, interested sort of like in how the second
3: that... lock thermodynamics thing. You yeah, know, think that... right matter can't be created or destroyed it's just transferred across this this gradient and that gradient i think is just our conceptual gradient like our conceptual imitation of being like like, this is a thing when in reality it's that thing is made through our exclusion of it which doesn't actually exist which goes back to the Loyotard point of that exclusion is conceptually necessary but it's not materially impactful to the world. It doesn't exist in the real world. It's just our conception of the world.
0: This brings up this question of, in terms of libidinal economy and desire and, and consumption, what is being exchanged? What is being consumed, at least from a metaphorical standpoint, no, and you know the law of conservation of energy right mm. what is being exchanged or consumed whenever we're it with within libidinal economy at all if it's all you know what i mean if it's all just sort of going back to this homeostasis or this point zero or whatever the case may be i don't know or does it never reach that is it always anytime it reaches that it, there's never an equilibrium or if, is it a momentary equilibrium before the scales tip in the other direction or like what's that relationship like
2: Well, I think it's a thing where there's always like something to fall back on, right? There's always to use like maybe like an accelerationist motif. There's never sufficient like deterritorialization. You can never go far enough into the can never go far enough into de-territorialization. And I think Mm -hmm. to some extent, this kind of echoes what Nick Land points out in his book, Thirst for Annihilation. It's that like zero is immense, right? You can go through zero and it's like, what's on the opposite side of the timeline, if not just (laughs) the negative numerical sequence. It's in that sense, what is consumption, but following, you could even say it's like, What is after the death drive? Well, if you start seeing the death drive as more as like a, not death as an inverse to life, but just as life itself as like the process onto death, it's like, well, then death has an infinite number of interpretations or mechanizations that you can diagram out. If you diagram the human body decomposing, it's like, well, what other, what other things does it produce upon decomposing? Taylor, where does that, I
0: guess, how does that function? You might be able to talk a bit about like Freudian death drive because Am, am i mistaken or that so the he unifies the drives into one drive right with uh, and beyond it, the present principle, uh, beyond the it, it, principle
1: it, it's it's there is maybe a unity of principle but but it, but he will distinguish the the life drives from the death drives right which is right and right, thanatos and you know, I think with Freud and Laplanche is great on this. Life and yeah. Death in Psychoanalysis, I think, would be another really good text to uh, bring in with Leotard and Freud. Yeah. And just, I mean, really quickly, it's it's a question of earlier Freud. He wants to say that the drive, the aim of the drive, is always what Strachey calls satisfaction, a free mm-hmm. which is a which in French is a, a It's it's a you know we can call it appeasement, but it's not political, right? It, it's it's this would be for Uh, the vichy government and stuff it's it's more about getting to a place of equilibrium which which in freud and early freud it's always about you know you have this built up of pressure and then the goal is to release and to get it to a a stable minimum now the question becomes with the planche as he shows especially in a text like beyond the palissa principle is earlier freud is thinking of a theoretical minimum whereas the freud of beyond the pleasure principle he even coins this term called the nirvana principle which would be like a, a, a complete evacuation which would be a, a complete satisfaction of pressure and so it's a question of is the theoretical minimum zero and and freud is he'll have in different phases he will emphasize one of the other aspect right is it is, is it just like a stable minimum or is it is it like full of you know evacuation that's where the death drive comes in right where it's for freud in his vitalism to go back to what young said earlier it it seems as though the death drive is about the life drive is about building up these components and this is where freud is also a platonist right he turns to plato uh and symposium specifically where you know eros is building up these 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 composites and these uh these larger units and then thanatos is breaking them down so it, it both has a kind of physicalism a kind of vitalism and but uh, with Laplanche, his his interest in the death drive and whether or not they are two sides right of the same coin is is in how the death drive is just really one of the moments of, of the drive itself, which is this notion of, of evacuating of satisfying of, of releasing pressure.
0: see I want to what I want to do is build like towards this of course i want to like drive this in the direction of of posting Uh, i think with especially this notion of like the pulsion too but to sort of back up and to get there i want to walk us through going through how like freud conceived i think in the interpretation of dreams he says that the unconscious and conscious are locations they're actual physical they're locations between which there's those i maybe you could even say it as the Different sides of that gradient. The unconscious mm-hmm. gradient is on one side, and the consciousness and the eyes, uh, the ideas are f- flowing back and forth between those. And that could even be like a metaphor for deterritorialization, reterritorialization, and that ebb and right. flow of the particles passing through the membrane, the bar of band. Right. I, you know, maybe.
1: And it's you no, know, you're you're right. I mean, the preconscious would be that that band. And and in, in interpretation of dreams, it's really this question of what he'll call the sensor. And so it's how in sleep, in dreams, there the sensor starts to starts to uh, to fall asleep, so to speak, and loses some of its vigilance. And the unconscious is able to then cross that threshold, circulate these ideas by means of. A kind of um, deviousness, right? Because you have distortion, you have these different substitutions and et cetera that tricks the the and allows a flow to be established that would have been um, repressed, you know, in in sober waking moments. And I think that's why Freud originally wants to talk about the rebus, right? That the, the dream is kind of this rebus. Uh, assemblage of, of pictures and words, and he'll even talk about schizophrenia in some some similar ways, right? I think th- these are some lines from anti right? <laughs> They talk about Freud-hating philosophers, right? Because philosophers do this kind of schizophrenic thing of words and words and things, or words and images are are sort of interchangeable in a way that uh, that you know that seems recalcitrant to the talking cure, right? If the schizo, you know, schizo keeps saying God and Freud's like, well, you mean your father? And (laughs) schizo's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And then he, you know, minutes later starts saying God again. And and it just doesn't stick, right? It's, this is where, you know, Freud to to go back to flows, wants to, wants to characterize the libido. And he, he takes this image of the libido, this figure of the libido as, as if it's too slippery you know, um, nothing can hold. Right. And, and, and that's kind of, you could say that's a schizo or if it's too viscous, you know, nothing, there's no movement anymore. There's kind of a static, you know, unconscious or psychical system. So you, so the neurotic is that, is that, is that, uh, what do you call it? The Goldilocks, like the porridge is just right because it's, it's, it's not too, it's not too viscous. It's not too, uh, it's not too thin. It's, it's able to have a certain consistency that allows this binding, yeah. Of of energies to go on, and I, and I do think that Leotar is very much playing with this notion of the band and the circulation of intensities, and this question of 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 the band and the bind and binding of libidinal energies. I think is important for their for their circulation.
0: Yeah, because that would be the ultimate question for libidinal economists or libidinal materials is like if it's all libido, and there's this productive force that's kind of like um, like a bull in a china shop, so to speak as a metaphor then like what is how is do we have any stability or like plane of consi- like any kind of consistency in re- in reality in in the socius right if it's all just unrestrained libido i don't know how to answer that question or if leotard even gestures to that or if that's even what his project is but i think that's maybe the primary critique or question that one would come come to
2: I think he starts addressing this later on in his work, not necessarily in libidinal economy right because gotcha. he starts talking about like I mentioned in postmodern condition he starts talking about like these language games in a lot of ways he's kind of addressing what is the minimal minimal reductive base let's say or similarity between you know all of these different socios or social groups and it's like well you know they have these language games right they're all playing these language games, they have implicit rules, so to say. So what is like the minimal rule that, you know, kind of helps these different social groups interact or even be able to play the same language games in a way? You know, I don't think he answers it fully, but I think part of it is like, even if you take the, to use the, what's it called, like the colloquial sense of nihilism, if you use the nihilist route, it's, there's still that minimal, that minimal reductive rule or universal, which is There is no universals, right? That's the one universal within nihilism. So in a lot of ways, it's that same. There's still one universal even within a (laughs) stratiated or polymorphic system yeah even the nihilist has a universal value
3: of there being no universal values
0: i think it's interesting to and i think for the listener just to like keep keep in mind this notion of the libidinal band as as we're going through this discussion because to pick up on this notion of topology in freud i thought it was interesting that he discusses or in this article i read it discusses how birth in itself like how is that is in a way a sort of bar or that's the that's almost like that sort of gradient change right whenever we're born it's altering we're going from literally inside to outside to something that is the outside is alien to us even within that exteriority we're still in, inside I mean, like
2: being born into the inside in a way.
0: So, I mean, so like we're literally physically inside our mother in the womb in this vaguely like circular topology, right? And then once we're born, we pass through the bar into the other side of the gradient, Mm -hmm. but we're still within, we're still within, we're not, we're external. There is something alien to us now, but even that alien exteriority is itself inside of this larger, like whatever machinic forces or something like that
1: I would say it's kind of like absolute space where up down left right have no meaning so it's you know if we take him seriously about the band about the Mobius strip the inside and the outside are not in a kind of exclusive distraction
2: right right kind of reminds me of uh, what is it called uh double, double articulation is that mm. what you mean? which is like this it, if we we're taking this inside outside distinction it's like you know it's that notion of capitalism it's like it deterritorializes, reterritorializes, re-territorializes but uh you know you, it's compensatory it happens at the exact same time you know the moment that something is deterritorialized, like to speak with capitalism capitalism re-territorializes right away so in a lot of ways let's use your example Coop. it's like if we're doing the same thing with like um like our phenomenological modeling, let's say. As soon as we venture into the outside, it's conceptually captured or re territorialized
0: And being born is sort of, that's when like your, the body is kind of cut, right? Like you're given a name at that point. Before you don't, well, I guess you could sort of have a name, but it's different. I really like the
3: metaphor of birth. That really like is a great way for me to think about the libidinal economy. It's an absolute interiority where the baby is inside something, but it's connected to the outside, like through the navel. Right. So there's, there's never like this pure interiority. There's always this outside, even though the baby doesn't consider there to be an outside. It doesn't quite understand how it's connected to the outside. And it has a conception of itself that's purely interior. But we're, we always are connected to the outside through some sort of, you know, navel, some sort of opening, right. just like the body is, is always through a membrane, technically, <laughs> you know, it's always, it's all interior, you know, you just unstretch the whole thing. There's nothing closed about the body.
0: Which goes back to that whole motif that Lyotard is going in, right. in terms of this flattening of the 3D body into a, a flat surface. Exactly. And the strata.
1: I was just going to say really quickly, this, is, this reminds me of, um, you know, Don. he distinguishes between the example of the crystal and physical individuation where, you know, you start with a, uh, with a singularity of a germ, and then around it progressively, you have this iterative amplification of, of, the, of a kind of reticular structure. And for the crystal, it's always growing on its edges. And so Mm -hmm. it's only the present is only on the edges. Whereas the plane of eminence? Well, you could say that um, it's less that, it's more that the interiority of the crystal is radically past, that it's Mm -hmm. already genetically anterior and is is merely the kind of structural foundation for that continual growth on the edges but when you have the regime of, li- of a vital individuation of, of the living being because of this communication of interior and exterior membranes the living being is in a, a regime of internal resonance such that all the different uh, whether it be the, the most interior or the most exterior it's all contemporaneous with itself. It doesn't have a radical past in the same way that the interiority of, you know, for, for he well he wants to say that the inside of the crystal is, is not the same type of interiority. You can't even necessarily call it an interiority in the same way that the living being shows that it's all of its, uh, it's different sectionalities and its membranes. They're, they're, they're always already kind of in communication with one another. And therefore, they are contemporaneous in a way in which the crystal can't be with itself.
2: And it makes me think of the whole thing that Kant has to do with introducing Numina. He doesn't fall back on like Berkeley's idealism in a way. Mm-hmm, uh-huh. Like that's exactly why he needs an external world or the thing in itself. If he didn't, then it would just be pure idealism in like this in like the strict Brooklyn sense. And it's not even like so much that you need the noumena, but you need the noumenal phenomenal distinction for there to even be, I would say like concepts for Kant. Con- how would he concepts say this? Song? Or would it be categories? Categories. Probably con- categories, yeah. But I guess the reason why I bring this up is just that is it ties into phenomenology. For Leotard, I think he's very much within this tradition, more so than Deleuze and Guattari, oh, yeah. I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's be- very much... I mean, as we move through the text to like, I think you're going to see even in chapter one, he's mentioned, he's on the con train, something interesting that I like this motif again, of the libidinal band that I find, maybe this is an interesting application that we can discuss and kind of maybe even wrap up on would be this kind of way that this is done. This process moves or expresses itself through virtualization. And I mean that like, and to put this to like Twitter, right? Because what are we doing? We're transcribing a three dimensional body onto into a two dimensional space. And what is the post? But like, it's, there is a post the relieving of that kind of Freudian tension or that pulsion, or like I even posted earlier, like it was a petite mort, like it's the little death is the post because I think there's something libidinal right at the end of the day, there's something libidinal about posting or communicating like the ecstasy of communication sort of to, to draw on Baudry art to some degree, but I just uh, leave that with anyone who wants to pick up and see what you think about that.
3: That's really interesting to me. It goes back to this this question I had earlier in the podcast about like dimensionality and the ability to translate one dimension through the limitations of another. Everything, like the way both this theory works and the post works, is to take something and to put it into like a two dimensional format. Right. Right. And that's like a necessity for these theorists like you have to have some way to describe higher dimensions in the second dimension. Right. But recently I've been thinking a lot about like the way virtualization works now is I don't know about you guys, but like my thinking itself is becoming far more two dimensional just by the process itself of thinking like of seeing Twitter every day of like working on the computer, of like working on a screen it's, yeah. it's interesting that, like, there's obviously we need to have sort of a reduction to the second dimension to describe anything. But at the same time, I'm like, I feel personally limited by sort of the forced two dimensionality of thinking as it is today in the virtual space. It's not that we're like trying to describe something and making it sort of virtual with the second dimension. It's like we're being physically reduced to that level of thinking. Like we're being forced, all of us, into basically topological thinkers. Second-dimensional thinkers. duty you thinking? Is there an alternative? <laughs> <laughs> do you ever like dream of posts? Like, do you dream that you're like on
0: Twitter or something? No,
1: I oh, or, like sure. dream of like a second-dimensional I've yeah. never
0: had that dream, but oh, I, mean, really, I, I
1: really remember mine. <laughs> I dream, I dream, a kind of mimetic post that that I wake up with and have to like transcribe immediately. Interesting. Um, so it won't be that I'm on Twitter, but that like my brain is like. Is saying some some silly fucking shit post that that crystallizes as the dream, you know, instead of it being action or or stage, it's really just a kind of mantra that my brain is trying to like yeah. get pa- get past that filter that sensor and yeah. um and and I do think that that, that one of the, the only thing I would push back, uh, young, is that I feel like with the the stuff about the band and these other things that. The propagation of memes, and and, and we use the term viral and virality, and I do think that the the virus in its, it's not itself, in and of itself, to use that kind of terminology, it's not vital or living, yet it has these interactions with the vital and takes on a kind of pseudo vital status with with the interplay. And so it straddles the line almost fractally, right? These dimensions of the physical and the vital. And so I Mm -hmm. do think that some of the things about Twitter that I find so gratifying is the way in which I uh, allow myself to be open to all kinds of interesting Circulations of of intensities and ideas that that inform and transform me behind my back and 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 beneath my consciousness, and so I do feel like there is a kind of interdimensionality uh, in the you know it's not perfectly fractal in a self repeating way, but it has a yeah. kind of analogous uh, fractality to it or or virality to it in in the sense in which uh, I think that that Coop was talking about as the seminal kind of um the the fluid nature of posting and um and in that sense like there's always little singularities that like populate my brain and 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 cause a chain of a chain reaction of, of thinking before i'm aware of it that's
3: really helpful for me personally, Taylor. Like I, I'm bringing these questions up. Like I just have this general feeling. Like I can understand it semi-philosophically, but I haven't thought yeah. through like the actual emotion attached to it. Right. That I feel like my thinking is becoming. Oh, not like purposefully. I don't even want to say purposefully, but just the way that I see the world, which is predominantly two-dimensional these days, mm-hmm. is oh, yeah. like there's something almost emotionally that I feel that I'm being like reduced further into like a more conceptual limitation than I was before. And I don't know why that is, but I just have the general feeling that as I've like gotten more into Twitter or like having to work two-dimensionally, there's something missing. Like it's almost like something's, some potential is being reduced in some weird way your point was really interesting to me because like you're right there's like this flip side there's this added vitality to twitter and there's actually like more vitality than ever was in the second dimension for me like i couldn't get that kind of emotional connection to even reading than like to communicate with people via twitter
0: yeah that i just don't know
3: really yeah exactly (laughs) and i don't know if i can like philosophically piece out yet these emotions it's just strange to me that i am so behind what's just like materially happening to my perception Like that's, that's kind of a new thing for me to like, feel like I'm not in control of the conceptual limitations.
0: Ooh, that's interesting. I think that's maybe the, like to the, the band element, the Mobius Mm -hmm. element, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think there's two things functioning and maybe this could even go back to my like Lacanian desire, Deluso Guattarian desire, because like at one level there is, I think, obviously there's a machinic desire, there's a machine unconscious that's expressing itself on twitter just largely because it's all right it's all sort of this self-referential language game element to it so that's like one side of the band but the other side of the band is like the ego or like the dopamine rush of that that ex- ecstatic Singular kind of pulsion that relieving of the individual tension, like why am I posting because I want something? I desire what do I desire? But uh, maybe Leotard would say that what you desire doesn't matter. Your desire can sort of have any object, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. But the fact that you desire what moves mm-hmm. libidinal economy, and I think maybe Twitter could be viewed as the bar or the threshold or the membrane through which the individual libidinal flows and the machinic flows are sort of integrating and there's that gradient flow between both because there's a give and take too of the meme that is created socially and you write know, its own se- circular like self-referentiality rather the individual ego can pick up and manipulate and go and push back out into the and then it can kind of like and there's that constant wave pattern function going back and forth yeah. and the mediation of that through technology i kind of want to essentially what i was thinking
2: <laughs> push back That's on what what you guys have brought up which it, because maybe to some extent maybe there's a bigger or more start contrast between some something like Dulles and qataris or maybe more i don't know who it would be but their plane of imminence you know this univocity. maybe let's think about it and turn the example you guys brought up with which is twitter which is this flatness uh, between all of these different interactions for example these mimetic i don't know posts and are the way that it structures our thinking to what you said, Coop. The other extreme would be maybe more the Leotardian interpretation of this, which would be that there is a, a stark difference, or or that there's this oscillation, maybe to use a, a better um, word, yeah. between you know the the material affects, you know, of using Twitter, you know, that the libidinal impulse to actually even get on Twitter and use it and get the gratification of getting likes and retweets. And then, you know, the more the bar, once you transverse that going to the opposite side, you know, the whole notion of using this Twitter as a system, as this network to proliferate ideas or proliferate memes or semiotics, whatever you want to say. And in that sense, it's like Leotard has a much more focused, I want to say say dichotomy or disjunction compared to something like Deleuze-Guatarian understanding of Twitter, maybe.
3: I think part of me thinks that like the body that... Loyotard is describing this this giant membrane needs to be substituted almost metaphorically with like I was thinking like if you stretched out like my posts you know or my search history I think I would probably right now consider that more indicative in almost a semiotic sense of like who I am than like you know my digestinal track Mm -hmm. like my the body is now predominantly virtual for me like if I had to choose one like the marks on my digestive tract, I don't think are as indicative as like years of posting. You know what I mean? My body is pretty much uploaded completely into this virtual semiotic space. And I wonder if that's like a a, a major change in how we should view the libidinal economy. Like if, if the body body can be extended yeah. metaphorically into new spaces that loyatar just couldn't have foreseen in 1974 right. the yeah, complete exactly. virtualization of life
0: exactly and that's extremely extremely potent like you mentioned in the era of working like you said even work life is now two-dimensional <laughs> as well like there's everything is going sort of that direction virtuality and
2: nothing human makes it <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs>
3: yeah. For
2: the right. future.
0: <laughs> Precisely um, singularities. I don't know.
1: <laughs> and there, there is some, there is something interesting about Twitter too, that mostly the, the AVIs and the PFEs, we, we, you know, I, I may be a slight exception, but a lot of times it's, it's, it's hard. To, we have to imaginably, imaginably associate a, a, a face with, right. with, with the post. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why anime, for example, is is so popular uh, as a medium for instantiating a persona, um, because it already comes with all these different uh, inputs of of art and entertainment and creativity and also narratives and and protagonists or, or antagonists, be as it may. And uh, there's a lot that goes into moving from the uh, generic Twitter egg. Uh, of uh, you know of a faceless you know egg poster versus all the different creative means in which people associate this this image with with their their voice or their um or their great ephemeral skin their great virtual ephemeral skin right
3: yeah that's a really great point like there's this there's two things going on that i can't tell like fully what the ramifications are, but it's like you're saying there's this deterritorialization where like me and tons of people, you can just leave who you are in the flesh and I can just kind of like make an identity for myself. I mean you could argue if that's like a you know a more true version of myself than actually my body. I mean that's this whole separate right. argument. But there is, I think you have to argue with deterritorialization there where like, but then there's the re-territorialization onto like my anonymous identities, like these Twitter accounts or whatever. So simultaneously I'm I'm leaving my body but I'm also territorializing into something new. And I'm not sure if that means that I'm like more de-territorialized than when I started or if there's actually maybe more re-territorialization and just capturing the entirety of who I could be as a person into just like what I can make up as an anonymous Twitter account, like how I can express myself in the virtual world. I'm not sure which is greater. Yeah. Is which it a could greater be,
0: re-territorial? Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say just, I, you were making me think and especially like in the context of libidinal economy is that what, twitter is doing or like the way it operates is very much in the capitalist market space in one sense first of all i guess i guess clout accumulation as measured through um what would be clout the metaphor or not the metaphor but the currency of clout is followers or engagement right Mm -hmm. which is its own economy and it functions on a I would say perhaps the th- way to think of it is that the more clout you have, the easier it is to accumulate clout, right? This is very similar to capital, mm-hmm. right? It's like those, if the more clout you have, the easier it is to gain more followers or the more engagement you have, the easier it is to pick up more engagement, right? Like it's this self, right. it's this positive feedback loop. Interest yeah. rates but, and yeah. velo- velocity of, velocity of <laughs> money. Yeah, exactly. VR, yeah. Right? So that leads into like, it but you also like their flip side of that is the algorithm, which is, mm, yeah. you could even yeah. maybe use the, Jesus. yeah, you can met, maybe yeah. the metaphor of like capitalism as the user interface through which it inter is interacted, which we don't have necessarily direct control yeah. over the user interface, but the user interface is a material. It's material shit. Maybe it's even a, a, uh, what's the fucking word? Um, I was using it earlier it's like the separation the uh,
1: the bar or maybe
0: the bar or like the membrane maybe the, the okay, membrane. So it's there like the membrane go. um right so the membrane is it's not a full it's not fully porous and it's not fully like it's not going to block up all of the flows but flows can travel through the pores within the membrane so that yeah. membrane is the user interface the user interface is capitalism that's how we right. like, are interacting with one another materially, whether it be through yeah. uh, actual physical or virtual production and one side right. of it. And then also virtual production of like whatever a posting.
3: Yeah. And I think like the virtualization causes reification or even like commodification of something that's, that was actually already there. Like you're talking about cloud. Like I don't think cloud is necessarily a new thing. I think it's a manifestation of a libidinal economy that was already there. Like I think of it as like, like it used to be like, do you remember, did you ever perform? You ever perform in front of a crowd? There's like a libidinal energy of like the energy of the crowd, but also like specific people in it. And it's the same thing as like, when you make a post, it's definitely a much more material version of it. But like you make a post and like you look at who liked it, you know what I mean? And you get the same sensation of there was like someone in the crowd you had a crush on and you're, you're aware of the economy, like of the flows of desire that are operating. And you're kind of getting that rush of like this person's paying attention to me. And now that's become much more reified in sort of like what capitalism does. It just makes it easier to see the libidinal economy sort of operate by trying to make it into things. Like cloud is like a a much more succinct version of that like little dopamine rush I would get if I was performing in in front of a crowd of people like that I knew or wanted to impress.
0: And then they, like, come up to you afterwards and say, oh, that was sick. Yeah, that was sick. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. You guys all brought up really good points. I'm glad I was taking notes. To f- address what you said, Taylor, Um, in terms of, like, the, what's it called? Like, the anime profile pictures. A hundred percent, like, you'll see someone with, like, a, what is it called? Experiment serial lane profile yeah. <laughs> picture. You already know uh, what type of ideological proclivities they have at least to some extent right um, you can't completely totalize them or you know reduct uh, reduce them to you know like oh they're ancap or you know they're an accelerationist or something like that but by and large if you see someone's handle connected with their avatar you already know a lot about what kind of right. what it's called posting patterns they're gonna have or things like that in terms of something that young brought up which i don't know if, if i should wait until he comes back just to see <laughs> if he has anything to say about my question but you've returned in time uh young <laughs> i was gonna actually ask you in terms of you mentioned that you're in terms of you know kind of projecting ourselves or you know this external production of ourselves onto virtual reality let's call it of twitter at least from like a marxist analysis is this not just like a furthering of alienation, you know, through, you could say, like, commoditization, not just of, in a way, not just of, like, everyday things, but in terms of, like, actual libidinal desires themselves, uh, the commoditization of those things. Like, why do we go on Twitter if not to get some sort of gratification, validation, things like that? I guess, to me, this seems to tie back with what I mentioned earlier about how Leotard is, like, a materialist in, like, the strictest sense. Leotard is saying, you know, these affects can be concretely set up in reality as like, you know, these material things. Twitter, in a sense, not the most I guess you could say like material thing as you were mentioning, like look at the code, you know, it's like the algorithm exists. It's Mm -hmm. like an actual concrete structure, the servers, they exist. And at that, in that sense, like the system itself, like the system of Twitter, the neural network, the algorithm, whatever you want to call it, it is directly constructed by our libidinal desire as much as it produces or constructs our libidinal intensities in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah.
3: That's a really, that's a, really good point. I think like just to start the sort of Marxist analysis you gave is absolutely correct, I think. But what you bring up is really important to like what we're talking about. Like you bring up the importance of loyotard to like bring to that Marxist analysis in order to understand Twitter. Like what you're saying, I think is absolutely accurate. It is alienation, but obviously I don't think Marxist analysis could possibly come up with like the ontological ramifications of that alienation. And now I think what you're bringing up just sort of gives me a slight idea of what that alienation is. To go back to my point, you know, if, if you performed in front of a crowd, that's like mm-hmm. something that kind of almost marks itself on your unconscious in a way that's much more intense, libidinally intense than what posting is now. The alienation is almost a libidinal alienation. The, right. the desire is being sort of like territorialized through a series of new modes of signification, mainly like the notifications and Twitter and everything. Okay. And it's sort of causing this, this general alienation of spirit that Marx was talking about with just commodity production. I think your point is is great and why we need Loyotard in order to understand this particular form of commoditization or reification. I think that's like a really interesting thing to think about.
0: Oh, I'm even thinking about that in the context of like posts, they're produced through the, mach- <laughs> the machine of the unconscious. Yeah, the machinic unconscious working itself. That's producing the what is the commodity? The post is the commodity, right? is for concern.
2: This ties back to what you guys were saying about clout as an economy. I want to get into like clout act, but um, (laughs) uh, just to kind of tie it back with what you guys were saying in terms of um, it's like if Leotard was doing like, not even Leotard, but like Deleuze and Guattari both, their books are kind of like, this is, these are, this is what theory looks like after, you know, 1968, those failed projects. In a lot of ways, it's like, well, what does theory look like today? And it's like the alienation of like an accelerationist realism so in a way, you have to interpret Leotard in this, or at least like libidinal economy in the same way, um, which is we choose our own repression. We choose our own alienation. But like, raise your hand if you want we to get rid of Twitter. We deserve, right? <laughs> exactly. Our libidinal desires or intensities produce system like Twitter. It's precisely because who doesn't like to take, or at least by us, I mean like the general public or whatever, the general user in terms of like Instagram, Instagram's like 90% selfies. It's the most narcissistic thing ever. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, who doesn't go on Twitter or on Instagram or whatever social media platform you choose to, Mm -hmm. you know, just simply go like someone's photo or do something like that in terms of the clout economy as like clout act i think you guys put the nail on the coffin on that one i thought that was a great point i mean clout itself is just self-perpetuating it's a positive feedback system i think Coop, you, oh, yeah. you mentioned that there's nothing that young you mentioned that it's like clout was always there clout yeah. in terms mm-hmm. of doing Cultural something capital. for someone yeah culture yeah. exactly
0: to go back um, to weber i think specifically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: It, but it's to use Glance's concept of teleoplexy it's like the farther you go into technological acceleration that also has to carry with it time or temporal acceleration in terms of mm-hmm. how like how quick or how fast these things have posted yeah. viral t- tweet or whatever that takes like seconds for it to proliferate across the interwebs comparison to like you know you hear it's someone do something yeah. cool in school you know it's yeah. like oh yeah did you hear this so and so did this oh haha! <laughs> ha. and the acceleration of these social interactions it's accelerated through something like a technologically advanced system like Twitter but at the same time it further pushes us or it re territorializes as as an alienating tool that's really
3: interesting i think it goes back to like your earlier point of like what is the theory of today i think your point's really interesting that the acceleration of technological processes say is expanding or accelerating the time frame of semiotic movement or ability right like the semiotic medium is changing so quickly through technology that thinking about it has a serious lag. We're reading a book that's 50 years old that was remarkably prescient for some of the things that we're going through today, but I haven't seen anything near a theoretical framework capable of moving one exponential fraction as quickly as the technological progress is changing the semiotic medium itself. It's it's pretty insane to think like the lag between theory and technology, so to speak, Is becoming so vast. I just don't even think it's even going to matter what the theory is after a certain point in time. Like if if the medium keeps changing so quickly and there's just no time to even think about it. You know, I just haven't seen like a particularly good theory for even like 1990s technologies yet. Maybe Baudrillard got into that a little bit, but like there's decades, decades of theoretical gap.
2: Do you bring up a really good point? I think in terms of like, what does that, what does today's theory even look like? And the closest yeah. I can even think of is someone like to be, you know, <laughs> to be a little cartoonish, Mark Fisher. But even yeah. then, he's just reiterating or he's reinterpreting yeah. something which was already there. Like all the all his mm-hmm. theory is just reinterpretations or punchy. This is more of a criticism of Mark Fisher, but it's just punchy headlines or, you know, that's um, where slogans. non-philosophy
0: comes in. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: Right, Taylor? I mean, yeah,
2: that's
1: it's, it's kind of a worn-out slogan now, right? <laughs> non-philosophy. Or non-standard <laughs> philosophy. Well, no, I, I yeah. just meant that that it did its job for its time and you know laurel wants to hold on to it while again bracketing it because of the fact that it's it's already been able to elicit all those great misunderstandings and and the intensity intensity of resistance from philosophy due to its misapprehension as Philosophies, death, or negation. So I think that that's why it's it's kind of it's done its job uh, and and really did function as a kind of uh, a kind of slogan to get a like a shit post right uh, yeah. like a, to, to get a to get a kind of reaction a rise out of out of philosophy in a way in which Larwell takes as one of the ingredients of philosophy as material, which is its resistance to the, to the one or the name of the real, however he wants to phrase it. And um, I think Leotard is doing something similar with this questioning of, of theology of the, like the theological furor and intensity behind certain, certain uses of power as I'll, as I'll go into later in the chapter right? So, um, so, yeah, I think that that's part of it, too, is Laruel's non-philosophy is wanting to attack a kind of theological kernel that the philosophy has towards itself, of believing in itself as, in its language and modes of Moses exposition, as conflating with the with the real.
0: The reason I brought that up was because, uh, Q, you kind of got into the same thing that I've brought up a few times in our discussions of Laruel is like, once Marx does political economy, it almost forecloses on Certain forecloses the potentiality for different political philosophies or political economies to generate themselves in a sense, but obviously that's not necessarily a hundred percent true. Like it does have an impact, right? Very much the way that perhaps you might say that the algorithm within Twitter has a material force that can limit or whatever the possibilities, the potentialities are for posting or what have you. So this is something that I have thought a lot about. About it. It's almost like the dead I've described it as too like the dead labor of philosophy, kind of we're haunted by that and like how do we in generate new concepts with while still being I don't know that's a a question I have a circle I have not been able to navigate necessarily
2: I I was just going to echo what Coop said which is just like that whole notion of like kind of like Deleuze and Guattari's Mm re-territorialization which I think is part of like the only salvageable thing about Dark Deleuze by Kendrick, Cole, mm-hmm. which is like, yeah, I think, I think if anything, at least how I interpret it in the Twitter sphere, I feel like when people, I feel like the only thing that people like about Deleuze and Guattari, it seems like is just their, aesthetic. you know, their, their aesthetic. Yeah. Their, this whole notion that you can create all these concepts and blah, 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 anything goes and it's pure creativity. And it, I don't think that's at all what their project entailed. I think definitely can be interpreted that way. But I don't like, I think if you're interpreting Deleuze and Guattari as kind of like these like relativistic conceptual nihilists in a way, I think you're reading them wrong or at least very naively. Yeah. Yeah, not to yeah. be like a DNG purist, but... Anything to add
0: on, on that? I'm curious if Taylor has anything to say on the, on that note.
1: I mean, I do think that, I think that what what you just said, cute is 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 right on. I, I wonder if it's also this, they're, they're also... Sometimes, and I, I try to play with this too, seems to be a parodying of what comes off as a kind of obscurantism. And so far as the and they're not going to, I mean, even in different repetition and logic of sense, but Deleuze is more generous there. Um isn't what If you just read the text as it is, and just get thrown in and don't do the legwork, they're not going to hold your fucking hand. It will feel like a slog. And many times it'll be like white noise or even just noise at the beginning of an album that it wards off casual listeners but if you do look at the footnotes uh, and the references they make in, in Antioedipus, and you're at least willing to form a curiosity about a lot of the uh, a lot of the material they're drawing from and some of it is not available like in the language one speaks which is i think why as a translator i was always trying to hunt down like the little little breadcrumbs he leaves us to to go on the journey and have the toolkit you know if we pay attention to that and have respect for that i do think that they they show themselves to be more rigorous than they come off when they get, when they turn into stereotypes or, or just catchphrases like organs, mm-hmm. so to speak. Uh, if we don't do that extra legwork and we just reduce them to a kind of obscurantism, then yeah, they become a parody. And I think that that's, that's part of why I, I also laugh at the explain to Lowe's to me, that's just, yeah. that's just, that's just great. And so I play with that too um, precisely because that's, that's, that's the, that's the thing, right? It's, it's, and this is why I think that, like if Twitter was around in the nineties, we would see much more like Derrida posting and shit. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the reasons why Derrida doesn't limit himself to that same kind of velocity and exchange and mimetic virality mm-hmm. as as say Deleuze or Gortri is this very fact that Derrida is, is, is always working on this this way in which language itself is being taken and and broken apart and whatever. He's not necessarily in that sense, he's not as easy of a target to, uh, to get turned into a kind of uh, unlimited creation of concepts, if you will. Right. I mean, there is a sense in which Deleuze, especially if you look at what is philosophy, that there, it becomes this thing that philosophy is the creation of concepts. It's just that it's it's not as you said. It's not a it's not a nihilism or a, 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 an endless convertibility, a carnival. Like there are there are rules and, and means in which concepts can and should be created and why they change and transform. It's not necessarily just a free for all or a smorgasbord. And if we understand that more more rigorously, but I do think that the jokes about surrounding the Liz and and all of that in which I try to participate, I try to use that kind of as a hook. Right. It's kind of yeah. like. You know, it, it, and that's that's precisely what how memes work. It's at least one of the ingredients. It's one of the the, the vectors. Uh, it's it, if you don't hook, you know, it's uh, which is why sometimes I'll 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 switch between like, hey, this is a cool passage from Simondon, de whatever, and and then more of a more of an immediate, less uh, linguistically mediated uh, form, whether it be just a series of 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 silly you know words in a post or an actual like image it, it is to evoke a response and i think this ties back to the whole cloud thing because i think about it as when i first got on twitter it was like hey read my translations and see what's what i find interesting and i and i've conserved some of that but i mean really with coop i've i've accelerated and then come onto the compost post train because it is kind of like a, a flowing and a, and a, and a flowing also in the sense of like a vibing, you know? Yeah. Uh- and which is why I try, if my clout means anything at all, I try to, like, interact and with, with those, you know, like Young said, like, I'm not just, on, we're not just on the stage performing, we're also in the mm-hmm. crowd we're at the same time, from- you know, and so we're, there's always these different exchanges of, of interest and gazes and takes, and, and so, for example, Coop posts, posts so much, I don't get to see or like all of his <laughs> posts, but, but, the, but the ones that really, like, you know, if if it's a good post, I'll like, I'll like it. But if it, if it really has some, if it hooks me, I'll, I'll retweet it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because, because that's, that's what we do. We do with our, with our, with our friends, with the ones we love and, and those who, mm-hmm. who excite us and, and push us, right? We we want to boost them as well.
0: Yeah. The yeah. whole assemblage and to go to what you were saying, Taylor, is like, there's got to be some libidinal red meat in there sometimes, right? There's yeah. got to be a little, show a little thigh, a little, mm-hmm. the yeah. lips, <laughs> the lips become flush right yeah there you go yeah. to draw draw in there, to tap onto to that desire of the other and say hey here's something i'm going to seduce you with this right. thing but and there's something then i'm doing something i'm flipping the tables on you to <laughs> some degree right one point i'll yeah. wrap up on i think and this was an interesting semiotic question and i think would i'd like to get everyone's opinion on before, and we can close out here would be just to think about this acceleration of communication of technology and communication at its base level. Just thinking about how effective uh, animated GIFs or GIFs are in terms of communicating in a way that a word or right. Or like even a picture can't quite capture the emotion or like the evocativeness of, of an animated GIF or GIF and like how that seems like pictorial images and animations are becoming more prevalent in the way that we interact with one another whether it be on twitter or through okay. text messages with one another like i often find that an animated gif or gif can capture there's so much more semiotic power in that than like a whole book you know almost yeah. like or like
1: or there were there were frames right there, Yeah. they're they're, they're spatiotemporal refrains and uh, yeah. it's not just reduced to, to sound but they they have and that's part of the means are or like a, either a subspecies of refrain or vice versa so you know because sometimes in responses I'll I'll I try not to reuse this, this the same uh, gifts too often so as to sap them of their effective right. force you know there's there's all because they are always in circulation and its redundancies of redundancy etc so uh, you know there is a way they get a certain cachet and a certain prominence but they can also be overused just like a like a song on on the radio you know it can it can, it can be so good that an overplay that it becomes you know like you're like go go the fuck away right i don't want to hear that shit anymore
3: i think that's like And I want to tie this back. I'm going to have to like tie this back so that I can make answer your question of like, just going back to your question of like, so what does theory need to look like for this particular time period? And I think this theory, like I was talking about earlier, has that internal entropy to it where it's very aware that it's not meant to exist forever, that it's a re-territorialization of a path of a wider path of deterritorialization. Like Loyotard would or Deleuze and Guattari would say, like, you know, these aren't supposed to be like universal texts. They're supposed to be like part of your journey, like we were talking about earlier, on this line of deterritorialization to find out more about like the general gist of what we're saying. Right. You know what I mean? And I think that's that's what theory needs to be to understand the sheer vitality of what you're saying, of like gifts and technological semiotics. Because the theory needs to match, or I think the genius of this kind of theory is that it matches the sheer entropic force of technological change itself, right? Like the semiotics are always changing, The meaning's always changing. So our theory needs to have that sort of like self-aware entropy to it, that it's going to change, that it's not supposed to build into a wider system, that it's one thing that's going to be continually changed. Just like capital changes the forms of communication or social relations, our theory needs to have that same sort of internal logic if it's going to be useful in describing the material conditions of a modern technological society.
0: And the political political economy or the political economical (laughs) expression of that or like how to tap into that or structure our political movements or whatever or our political economy broadly into that direction and understanding maybe rather than like oh we have reached this like teleological point of the revolution and then you know no but I guess even Marx and Engels would say like it's the abolition of the current state of affairs, right? Yeah, is what communism would be,
3: or all that all that solid melts into air. Yeah. You know, right. in and theory theory should too,
2: just yeah. as you know, <laughs> capital and social relations. I guess just to kind of echo what you guys have already mentioned, in that sense, to what you said, young. Well, what does theory need to look like today? And it's like, well, let's let's just make the analogy of like theory as gifts, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. make it as mimetically spreadable. let's say like, like, let's ride that line of flight, for example, um, mm-hmm. and, s- and see how mimetic we can make theory in a way to proliferate it. But at the same time, kind of like what we've all echoed, I guess it seems like our strategies would be, would be to don't forget about like the, the, the red meat, you know, like <laughs> yeah. be, be substan- substantive as well. Like, don't just, you know, fall into these, this going to sound like a criticism, not to throw any names under the bus or anything like that but like (laughs) Justin Murphy you know (laughs) you can become so mimetic or so I don't know how to aestheticized yeah you can fall into like the this black hole right of semiotic self referentialism yeah and it's like yeah obviously you don't want to fall into something like that I'm not saying you know not to kind of you know out myself I'm, a, I'm kind of a fan of justin in some aspects and what he does and in that sense it's like the mimetic proliferation or like broadcasting your signal or i guess what he calls becoming imperceptible or you know which i think ties better if you would say something like becoming minority you know it's like why did Deleuze and Gutari focus so much on a writer like Franz kafka you know it's like mm-hmm becoming minority in the sense of like Kafka as a writer, he you know, his style it wasn't at least at the time that Kafka was writing to my to my impression, he wasn't very popular or very he wasn't a a heavyweight, at least not to yeah. my understanding. Yeah. Well, he he speak the language.
0: Minor, yeah. minor minor
2: literature. minor literature. Right? That's yeah.
0: a great book. Yeah. But you're absolutely oh, right. Yeah.
2: And then in that sense it's like as I don't know how do you say it, it's people interacting and in, on Twitter and on the web's trying to proliferate a message it's like well we have to become minority we have to become you know shit posters or use certain tactics that proliferate our message but that's not to confuse us with actual shit posters or you know um not to say that Mm -hmm. Not to degrade them in that sense, but it's to use these styles to broadcast a signal that proliferates, is mimetic in itself, and is all-encompassing, while at the same time retaining some of our own individuality. That's the dual side of
0: the libidinal band, too. I always think about,
1: um, I become, sometimes... I'm drinking and enjoying myself there will be there will be an acceleration of uh of some shit posting but also I'll also interact more with posts I think I'll because I'll be relaxing with my wife and we'll have like a show on in the background or something like that and I'll you know I'll be scrolling and it's not I, I I never get into the habit of doom scrolling I know that I I did back in like 2016 when I was like uh kind of Sort of, you know, uh, sunk into that that whole the the dude. What is it the the turd sandwich and the douche, right? <laughs> yeah. Trump, Trump and the whole pol- Hillary the whole So I, I, that's when I was doom scrolling the the most. But uh, you know, I guess what I get it's kind of like a at a party, you know, like once or at a bar. Once you've had a few drinks, you disinhibit, you become a little bit more talkative. You know, you you, you sort of unlock a little bit more of of. Uh, there's that truth and wine thing. You just become a little bit looser etcetera. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of shifts and, um, where it's less about it, it, seriousness becomes much less of a, of a priority. Uh, yeah. it, if it ever was, it just, it just takes a, takes a, a step aside and and allows for a different like rate or, or, or coordination of flows. And, and I will definitely uh, not just ship those more, but I'll, a lot of times I'll also, cause I'm a happy drunk. I'll, I'll be very like, like, Hey, I love all you guys, you know, and and, <laughs> and I and I'll want to, I want to reply to people's posts to interact in a way that um, I may not always do or be be as inhibited or or, or it's it's like an inclination right it's like a rate of rate of return or rate of interaction and and types of interactions because I I will generally try to like everything that at least makes me smile or makes me think I won't always and we don't always have the time to reply I mean with the whole Mm -hmm. with the whole almost like infinite variation that's going on but yeah I mean that's that's something that that I, and I also see myself interacting with people further outside of the normal sphere of thinkers that I see. Like when I see yeah. you guys, I'm, I'm, I am I'm always try to like at least take the, the time to to read it. But I, I know that I'll, uh, as I disinhibit a little bit more, I start to uh, see minor voices on, on a more equal plane, hierarchically than than having like my like tier of interest and respect in, in my friends, you know what I mean?
3: I'm kind of like that sober, like, one of the mm-hmm. things that I get a lot of joy from is just like complimenting people. Like I get this like I'll I like to to like compliment people and it's not like because I get anything out of it other than like the joy of the thing itself like I like making people feel good and yeah. like I definitely like translate that into Twitter but it's like you're saying that has extended beyond the confines of my physical sociality like I've genuinely grown to love you guys you know because I've course. seen you on Twitter for years yeah. and I have that like connection to you guys you know I read all your posts and I, I like to compliment you guys but that was not a possibility even though that's like a virtual of my already sort of like social behavior of liking to compliment people that are near me, the the ability to compliment you guys is something that's clearly like new and that I've really enjoyed being able to do.
1: Same same for me. I I feel like especially in this past year, I mean we're all experiencing different yeah. forms of quarantine and lockdown, and and you know inevitably reorganize the way we interact uh, even more so than Twitter ever could, which was just one of the. A side format, you know, and uh, Zoom taking off as a business and whatnot, and and it's it's rise and fall with the stock market after the uh, initial set of quarantine, with and now with uh, its fall with <laughs> with the, the announcement of a of a vaccine on the horizon. But but Coop especially, I mean, he working with with Coop got me out of my because with Theory Talk, I always felt I was a representative of a of a kind of brand of even if it was theoretical, like riffing in jam sessions and whatnot it always felt more had this aura of of i gotta i gotta post about my translations and, and be serious and share theory pure theory or something and i feel like Coop kind of took me from being a fucking like theory square you know a, a wallflower to to being just allowing myself to be more of my actual self including making jokes you know, call them shit posts or whatever, but including trying to, trying to make other people laugh. Not, not again, it's not necessarily just, obviously there's always that side of it. That is about a, a kind of narcissism where we do get that dopamine rush and the likes and retweets, yeah. but it's also to, to imagining others, you know, cause if I laugh at something in my head, I'll try to find a way to share it. And yeah, if, it, yeah. if it brings like one smile from one, whether a mutual or not, you know, if we can imagine it bringing at least one smile in the world somewhere, there is something like you said, young, that's, it's, it's, it's like a gift it yeah. doesn't have to be, Fuck yeah. you know what I mean? It doesn't have to be, um, we don't have to necessarily get something straight back from it, whether it be a compliment or, or even a like, cause, cause you know that everybody's post gets many more views than they get necessarily like, algorithmic interactions and you may not know if, if, if a post that never got a like, whether it brought a smile to, 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 to a lone soul or not. So I don't know. That's just, that's kind of how I, how I kind of uh, think about it now. And that's why I feel like I'm much more myself online than I, I was, I was always very reserved in the past and, and, wasn't cultivating a persona, it's just I didn't think about the fact that that's what Twitter could be for me. And and so it was always kind of an ancillary thing. And I feel like it's much more intimate for me now where I have formed Mm -hmm. these friendships with you guys and with so many others. And you can say whether or not they're virtual, they're obviously real. I
3: love the like, libidinal or even just like to go as far to say like, like the human mystery of why I'm, a, I'm attracted to your guys as a counselor to your personhood. You know, like I have no idea why I found these right. particular people.
0: It's all unconscious. You know what I mean? Like machine- why,
3: how, yeah. Like why did I follow the people I <laughs> followed and like why did I start randomly gravitating to these specific yeah. people? I love that that's just so mysterious to me because it is just sort of that part of human sociality that you're just like, why am I friends with these people? You know, there's, there's a mystery to it that I can never, I mean, you can aestheticize it and be like, Oh, I have similar aesthetic taste, but that doesn't even like come close to no, comprehending why.
1: And Twitter is great because of the the randomness of the encounters, right? The randomness, yeah. the the unprecedented, uh, unexpected aspect of of the this inventive encounters. Because all of you, yeah, there was something that you know we can call it vibing. You can call it, and, and it doesn't have to be direct, too. I mean, I've met so many people through Coop, just to use him as an example, that I feel like you know that's expanded my horizons of of mutuals and and friends. And so there that that's kind of how it propagates. That's I mean that's that's the thing, right? We sometimes a friend will interact with someone else that we whom we don't know and it might draw us into to say like, "Oh, who's this? What's this singularity doing over here?" right? And and there's no there's no law of accounting for it and it's almost exponentially incalculable because in our in the past and in, in our everyday lives and this is obviously the wonder of the internet our friendships were really much more locally circumscribed, right? And based upon uh, physical locations and, and the interaction of physical bodies, uh, usually starting with the family, but also like the school and these other, you know, institutions that we, we go through. And uh, I think the Twitter allows for a kind of, I don't want to say flattening, like in the band sense, but like of, an, of, a, of a concentration of interaction, right. Yeah, for all intensity. these little molecules, you know, bouncing around and uh, you know, who do we, who do we sort of form these other uh, these bonds with to create these, these larger composites to use like the eros thing. Cause it is, I mean, part of that is a, is, is that libidinal, that erotic, you know, that connection of friendships and, and, and. Uh, intercourse, yeah. right? Yeah.
2: Inter- oh, intercourse
0: with our, With our mutual, instead of discourse, it's intercourse. (laughs) That's what posting is.
2: What is the revolutionary path (laughs) (laughs) to post on Twitter? (laughs) I agree with what you guys pretty much have said. I I think that, I mean, even just, I don't know, Taylor, I didn't know you before I made cute Newman up a I knew Coop and Young and even just the way that I've approached Twitter, you know, over the years uh, has drastically changed ever since I made Cute Numina. Just like the way that I engage with people or or choose not to engage or, you know, the accounts that I follow, things like that. It's like, it's more about, to me, it's just at least now it's more about treating or at least trying to treat Twitter as like if I was at a party or something, a true extension of how I am socially.
0: I think that'll wrap us up for this at least portion of the discussion of chapter one. I think we at least circumnavigated to some degree like a lot of the themes that were that are being explored with Leotard and this notion of the kind of libidinal body. And I think exploring that through the virtualized body of Twitter is like a great metaphor and way to sort of conceptualize how that works. And I think that it's kind of interesting maybe to broadly describe it as Twitter itself could be like this libidinal body and there's like the intensities on the libidinal body are different nodes, perhaps nodes of intensity or singularities or whatever the case may be that you can sort of like lattice onto like the rhizome and kind of build new assemblages and potentialities. So I think that's why I like to focus on on Twitter and social media. But again, that'll wrap up our discussion of chapter one. I'll let each of you, you know, take turns. If you want to plug something, feel free to, to take that opportunity now and then we'll wrap up.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would just say uh, if you guys are interested um, with the launch of my new podcast, you know, chaos street there's obviously going to be a time in this coming year where I'll want to either assemble with one of you individually, or we can get this group together or, or some sort of interest. Interesting combination. So I'm hoping to produce more episodes. I'm I'm going to be editing episode two. So it's still it's still fledgling. It's still kind of in proof of concept stage. But uh, yeah, if you guys want another podcast to listen to all you guys out there, you know, you can find me on Twitter at Chaos Street. You can find it on Apple, Google and SoundCloud, and it's trying. We're, we're trying to do something different than than what I mentioned earlier with with theory talk, right? I'm trying to sort of set out on a with a new vibe that's a, that's not so not so serious, right?
2: Well, I guess I'll go next. Uh, I don't really have much to plug in except my Twitter. <laughs> follow me at QNumina, or oh, it's it's uh, what right? is it at, at CN? Yeah, CNumina, correct? Yeah, and also follow my blog posts or blog blog on. Medium. It's also at cute numina, cute underscore numina.
3: Definitely follow everybody here cute numina, Taylor Atkins, young Kanian. Definitely read the cute, Nomina, cute numina blog posts. I really love those. That's like a good thing that I've, I've been reading recurringly. Definitely follow that and definitely buy Taylor's transitions, especially Simon Doan. That's an amazing translation. I mean, he does great yes. translations, but if, you, if you're interested in any of the theorists we're talking about, Taylor consistently translates things that you will like need to read. It's incredible. So follow all of us on Twitter. Obviously, this podcast is amazing. So Give your keep following if following that, follow Young Lacanian. And then, obviously, the only thing I have to plug is my account. So Young Agamben. I'm pretty sure it's just YA Agamben. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. It's YA Agamben. So, <laughs> <Y-A-G-A-B-N. laughs> yeah. my, my, old, my old account got nuked
1: six months ago. <laughs>
0: And I'll oh, throw everybody's oh. links in the in the show notes. But uh, yeah. this will this is gonna be Machinic Un- Unconscious okay. Javier with Cooper Cherry signing off for the week. Of
1: negativity and Including the ultimate form of singularity, which is how can care the whole state of, things. The violence without of the This is the typical violence of Violent, because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here.
2: What I mean is the following
1: nothing left but recycled, whitewashed,
2: lobotomized people as in block uh, work orange.